Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast on the Export Audio Network. I am your co-host Neve, and I'm joined by my other co-host Connor. Welcome back, everybody. And special gar- uh, guest star, not special Garf, special guest star. No, Autumn. no, no! I'm the special Just Garf. You had it right. Garf, Garf on the mind over here. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't so, yeah. say my name. I did. I said special Garf Autumn. You did not say my name. I said, roll back the tape. <laughs> not special Garf. Special guest star. Autumn. No, no, no. I said special guest star Autumn. Hmm. <laughs> well, since I was you also the texting editing, when you said it. So just since you control fact- the editing of this podcast, I guess the world will never know. <laughs> you just rate, rate history to suit your own hands. I yeah, said I'm your gonna... name, and everyone will vindicate me. Right? Or so, or I'll you start, just wanted uh, to hear me say your name again. <laughs> I'll start a fucking memento. Like, do not believe Neve's lies. Like, conspiracy theory. Uh, and you know, the podcast listeners will know the truth that you edited yourself saying that but it didn't yeah. actually happen yeah and five days later you're gonna execute an innocent man in a grimy basement somewhere i do that most days <laughs> yeah all right. today we all are right. covering cool. episodes 31 through 39 of magic knight ray earth we want to get into the synopsis or do yeah, people have yeah, more more jokes to make no no who, so, <laughs> who, who's who's doing the first synopsis neve uh autumn is autumn do you have the thing open uh yeah totally uh i'll just uh you know uh <laughs> i don't even i don't even have any way to fill the time uh it's open now <laughs> we can see when you have it open it's a google doc <laughs> yeah The Bravada mobile fortress of Chizetta uh, approaches while Lady Asuka of Farin teaches Sanyung uh, and, and Chang... Changong. Changong. How to do haughty anime laugh. <laughs> um, Lantis, Clef, Ferio, and Lafarga capture Alcyone in a bubbly uh, and interrogate her. When they mention uh, Emeron, Alcyone's eyes glow red and... Then she tells them that she and Debonair will bring about the end of a pillar-supported Sephiro, and that the people have wished for Debonair, who is ominously right by our sides. Meanwhile, the girls have a Hot Springs episode, and everyone agrees that Hikaru is cute, even though she thinks she's not cute and is too much like a boy. We, we will all have no <laughs> thoughts or feelings about this scene. Things are very gay, but also a, a little too straight when Hikaru... Wonders if guys only like girls with big breasts. Anyway, Ascot interrupts on the intercom to say the bravada of Chisetta is nearing the castle. Uh, the princess uh, sisters of Chisetta, Tarda and Tatra, summon the djinn, and we get a homophobic joke about them being gay-coded, and that's gross. And then that homophobic, uh, homophobic joke just like continues for literally half an episode. Um, it's just the same joke about how like the Jin look like these buff men, but then they're doing the feminine dances that Tarda and Tatra are doing, and it's gross when men are effeminate. Um, and literally, this is half the episode, and it will continue to be a joke anytime that the Jin show up on screen for the rest of this anime. But this is like the worst of it. <laughs> um, I 
I literally skipped through most of this episode because I got so tired of this joke. Yeah. Um, and then Umi in particular thinks this is, like, really gross because I guess... My, my theory, she's never found a single man attractive in her entire life, although um, this will continue to be the case throughout the series. Umi's going to continue to remain uninterested in men, uh, despite the fact that Connor is apparently extremely convinced that Umi is straight for Asuka, even though this literally never happens at all in the show. Uh, there's, in fact, scenes specifically about, around Umi not loving Ascot. Anyway... Lady Asuka summons another illusion, and this time it's a cartoony giant Song Young, and it's fucking great. Um, this is perfect. It's my favorite mech design ever. <laughs> um, and then uh, at the very end, a tiny bit of actual plot happens where Hikaru asks Prisea to help her revive her sword. Umi is captured by the Jin of Shizeda. Uh, Fu is captured by giant Song Young and, you know, goes to Farin. And then Debonair says that they're door is ready while nova talks about how she discovered a new feeling in hikaru's heart nothing episode <laughs> uh so ascot is <laughs> um ascot is uh agitated greatly by uh, umi's plight and is going to go rescue her uh but kaldina intercedes and casts sleep on ascot uh to force him from doing something dangerous um quick aside here uh it's it's so sad to me that that y'all are that are being made fun of for this uh, for this misremembrance I had. You know, it's just like <laughs> you know, it's July eighteenth, twenty twenty one, and the Philadelphia seventy sixers just swept the uh, Phoenix Suns to clinch their first championship in thirty years. Um, Is that a Twitter account? But it features someone reading Garfield comics. Was just featured on Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, it's just such an exciting, like, positive time, and you two choose to, like, linger on negativity, so it's really just, it's really sad to me. Um, so anyway, back to Raith, um, we find that, uh, Prisea, uh, actually did die, um, quote-unquote Prisea is revealed to be, um, Prisea's identical twin sister, uh, and then, uh, fake Prisea goes to help Hikaru revive her sword through uh, similar magic as the previous forging um, that involves lifting Hikaru up in the air wrapped in silk, etc., uh, etc. Et um, Prisea tells Hikaru to, quote-unquote, hold on to your wish, uh, echoing the lyrics of the Season 1 OP. We get clips from Season 1 as Hikaru remembers their original adventure, specifically all of the like hardship that she went through, all these things that... Uh, on some level, make her resent uh, what's taken place. Um, and Nova kind of invades Hikaru's mind, uh, trying to interrupt the process, uh, and tells her, forget about her girlfriends. First kind of framed as uh, coming to Sephiro, being summoned as a magic knight as something that just brought you pain. And then later framed as like, oh, don't you resent Umi and Fu for being your friend and or being present uh and creating the conditions to be summoned as magic knights etc etc um and ultimately with the overall thrust of um he could just give up on reality and come play with me instead um and uh nova then embraces he scary music plays uh and the he in the real world starts to be engulfed in darkness um instead of the light of Perseus magic 
I I think it's rude that you didn't read any of the fun jokes that I wrote for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, doing my best here. I like that uh, when you had to make a joke about positive things happening in Nia and I's lives, you went to the Sixers won a championship <laughs> and Garfield read aloud was on Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> I would I would fucking hate that. <laughs> Although my dream is for it to be like slightly popular enough for some small like uh publication to like interview oh, like, me like, about it and like, then just like, give like the most out. bizarre interview. No, no. <laughs> small publication. I'm not talking about a stupid show, got it. Um Is that show still on? I have God, no idea. I hope not. I'm Googling it. Anyway, you you didn't. The fun joke that I really had in here was how Anno truly just stole everything from Ray Earth. Uh, anyway, the final episode that we'll be discussing in this like section, uh, Nova continues to try to tempt Ikaru away from Umi and Fu, and this time is like basically going through some of it, but um, doing like false memories that are suggesting that Umi and Fu like always resented Hikaru for involving them, um, and that like. Basically that they hate her, but Hikaru's like, no, I'm not going to doubt my girlfriends. Uh, so Nova then shifts tactics and uh, says, like, even though the feelings that you have for Lantis, there's, like, a difference here. You also love Lantis, but he's never going to love you back because he hates you for killing your brother or his brother Zagato. Um, and this, like, finally shakes Hikaru, the ground beneath her, and this, like, dream well uh, realm gives way and she falls into a chasm. Um Meanwhile, Lantis is commenting about how either, even in a pillarless Sephiro, flowers still uh, bloom, and then like has a new type flash about Hikaru. There's just going to be a ton of new type flashes throughout the rest of these episodes. Um, people just keep being like, Hikaru! Uh, <laughs> then we get these parallel scenes of uh, Umi waking up in a prison in the bravado of the Chiseida. Um, like, they're mobile fortress and then talking to Celis and then on Fu waking up in a prison in the dome of Farin and talking to Wyndham. Um, both of them basically have a conversation with the rune gods where they're like, Hey, you're like an individual. And why do you just call me a girl from another world? You should call me by my name. I like call you by your name. What's the proper way to address you? Um, we should like get coffee sometime and catch up. It seems like you have a lot of cool stories to tell me. Uh, and then they have a new type flash about Hikaru. Uh, again, it just keeps happening. Um, and then we end the episodes that we're discussing right now with uh, Eagle planning to invade Sephiro. Uh, but first, he's talking to his boyfriend, Geo Metro, about how, you know, um, basically Eagle's hanging around his ex-boyfriend, Lantis, again. And it's, like, been kind of rough. But Eagle assures Geo, like, I love you still, uh, then has anime space disease and coughs up blood, uh, has been hiding it from everyone, even his, uh, husband, Gio and son, Zazu. Um, and then, yeah, it's like, it doesn't even matter if Lantis hates me now because I'm dying anyway. So that's these four episodes. Definitely no editorializing at the end there on my part. Not, not at all. <laughs> By the way, if you or someone you know has unidentified anime wasting disease, you may be entitled to compensation. Just uh, call the law firm <laughs> of Ghost Divers and Associates, and we will fight for you. 
<laughs> ghost, comma, divers, comma, and associates. <laughs> ghost and divers associates. Um, I just wanted everybody to know that um, the last episode of Tosh.0 aired in November of 2020. Um, that was too soon. <laughs> yeah, I would have thought it would have been 2015, but nope. Um, it had been renewed for... It a day that will be celebrated for, for <laughs> a day that will be celebrated for time immemorial. Um, but because of COVID, they uh, decided to cancel it despite having renewed it for another four seasons. So, um, wow. So anyway, <laughs> anyone want to get started on these episodes? <laughs> so, Magic Knight Ray Earth is the greatest anime ever made. Um, correct. Because... Oh, you're fully you're fully converted <laughs> because there was a girls in the bath scene in an anime, and it wasn't a huge waste of my fucking time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, like character moments happen, and we learned about like what characters felt about themselves and about others, and like uh, also there was just you know the normal jokes. I just. Imagine, imagine if every uh, show could just do a bath scene that was in any way interesting. It happened. <laughs> um, a lot of gender happening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know um, if you have any like uh, initial thoughts on this. I'm just, I, I I'm don't just quite to... know where to start, other than what I had just said. So yeah, if you have something, like please. I'm just trying to think of, like, I'm trying to apply this principle of, like, I wish every anime had a bath scene in, in my mind. I'm trying to play, play that out, and uh, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know how far we should take that. I um, mean, every anime does have a bath scene, it's just that most of them suck. <laughs> okay, fair. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah even- I, I, missed, I missed that bath scene in Berserk. <laughs> Um, Even okay, Evangelion so... had a hot spring scene, and we talked about it, and it was not a yeah, very good hot did. spring scene. Um, even though it also had someone going, hey, you have a scar. <laughs> Naruto has several. Anyway. Um, this is so, yeah, I mean, oh, wait, the MS team the... had several. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it did. It did. They, we, we, we really liked them all, I remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so episode 31. Um I don't know. I mean, we're we're all clearly very uh, have a lot to say about the bath scene. Um, maybe we can like talk about something else really quick and then work our way back around to that. Um, so there's, I mean, I think the first thing is like the ethnic mappings of these various countries and and how that's handled. Um, mm-hmm. I know we talked like a little bit about maybe Autozam being like the U.S. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but then, uh, like Chizeda appears to be some kind of like conflation of like Indian culture and like Arabic culture or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. And then foreign is like clearly mapped to China, um, in, in ways that we haven't are, gotten like, there yet, but they have like ninjas as well. So 
which gets commented on by the show itself of like, oh, I thought it was supposed to be the China one. Why do they have ninjas? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like there is something there that we could like draw out if we wanted to. Um, but I just don't really have uh, anything smart to say about that <laughs> right no. now. Um, no, it is just G Gundam to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just like completely topical. Um, the feeling I have is like the people making season two looked at like, okay, like Clef and Ascot, you could like maybe read a little bit of like Taoist monk, especially Ascot into like some of the, the outfit design. Um, and then, you know, canonically, um, Caldina is from Chizeta, but like you can get a little bit of this like, oh, dancer, like India, Arabia, like RPG trope. Um, And then they just decide to extend those out to like entire nations, like entire countries in in season two um, in a way that like part of me, I look at this and I'm like, I don't even know if they're like necessarily saying something directly or if they're kind of just like pulling on what was more worked in visual influences into some of the designs and then just like doing it more explicitly and poorly <laughs> um, in some <laughs> cases. Uh, yeah. I so think yeah. there's like, there's some sort of like historical reading we could probably do with this. Um, like something's happening there, but I just don't know if it's, yeah, I don't know if it's really interesting. Yeah, honestly, especially because I mean, a little bit of stuff comes up with like Fire and Zeta, and I think, especially like when we talk about the other five episodes that we're going to be talking about in this um, episode, like you, I think you can do some mapping of like, oh, how is Faran relating to Fu, and how is Chizeta relating to like Umi as like developing those characters more, but also these characters compared to basically everyone else, like the foreign characters and the Chizeta characters are kind of just the like comic relief of season two. Um, in, in a way where like, yeah, we can talk about some of the other stuff around it, but also I, I think some of it is, it's just like, Oh, this is just like cartoony uh, nonsense that especially at this time would often like veer into weird ethnic or racial caricatures. So, yeah. Um, and we we definitely uh, brush up against against that um, here, I think, to some extent. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I guess like Torto and Tatra um, are for me like we've talked about the show kind of setting up different forms of femininity, and um, this like again is a pretty clear. Um, there's like a structure of femininity happening between them um, with like braided and unbraided hair. Um, one of them is like pugnacious and aggressive. And then one of them is like fixated on these kind of domestic uh, tasks. Um, the same ones are, you know, in, in the same arrangement, like uh, one is like leading the fleet or whatever, leading the invasion. The other one is like meek and seemingly not caring about um, the battle or the invasion. Um, so, I just want to mark this out as like we we do see more of Tarda and Tatra uh, throughout the remaining episodes, um, and I think this is developed 
in in kind of subverted a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that like even in these episodes, I noticed right away is like I let me. <laughs> I don't have my like little notebook in here, but I basically wrote a note like 431 that was um, Tarda is like on the surface brat and Tatra is subtly brat. Like Tatra is like constantly making fun of and mocking Tarda and like trying to get a rise out of her. They are both being bratty to each other just in different ways. Um, Tatra is a delight. Yeah. Like, like Tatra is like the master of the underhanded comment that is going to get a rise out of someone. <laughs> so, like, I don't even know if I fully read her as meek. I read her more as just like, like the way that I read these characters is them being set up in relation to the people who they get paired with. And so, like, for me, Tarda and Tatra are like emphasizing aspects of Umi, um, where like there is a part of Umi that's like poised and trying to be this like. Uh, prim proper woman and then there's also just like we we will have extended scenes later in the episodes that we discuss uh of tarda and like umi just being like complete brats to each other and just like yelling at each other um in a way where it's like clearly umi also just has this like more brash uh like in your face aspect as well. Um, and so I think to some degree, like these characters are meant to draw out aspects of those characters and like the, the, in a way that we're getting like a two sidedness to some of Hikaru. I think we also get some of that with Umi and Fu and how they get paired up with like the other countries. Um, but it's often through like a more comical framing than what we get with Hikaru and Nova. Which it, which yeah. is a lot like darker. Yeah, I think that makes sense, and I think there's something to that with like the part of Umi that is like this prim proper, you know, status uh, concerned with like status and image is also the part of Umi that is like easily flustered. Um, yeah, which we see with Tarda as well. Um, so that yeah, that linkage is is definitely. Um, Seems significant, and it goes along with like what we've talked about a lot with how Rare Earth is is often using characters like foils and comparisons um, to like subtly highlight or or develop um, like the main characters. Um, I think I mean there's stuff just going through my notes here. Like there's stuff about the Escudo Sword that I think is kind of um, like the breaking of it. Uh, I think is kind of obvious. Um, and then, you know, since we all really want to talk about the bass scene, like, I think, <laughs> um, I think we should just do that. Um, the first thing, so maybe I'll just make a few comments about it and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you all like go as well. Um, so the first thing that I thought that stands out to me is like right before the bass scene, um, when the bath is proposed, like, Kaldina is teasing Ascot about the possibility of bathing with the girls, um, but it's framed as, like, oh, like, first of all, like, I know you you want to see Umi naked, um, but then, like, oh, it's too bad that you, like, you know, used your will to turn yourself into, like, an adult or whatever, because if you were still a child, like, you could have gotten mm-hmm. away with bathing with uh, with her and, like, seen her naked, 
um, which is the whole thing with Ascot is really weird. And the fact that he's still a child, but like, or whatever age he was in season one, um, but just now in an adult body, um, which strikes me as similar to Emerald's situation where she's like this adult woman who's trapped in a child's body. Um, we talked about the weirdness around that. Um, and again, this is like this axis of like the reality manipulation of like Saphira's a land of will, how that plays out in people's bodies. And then like the sexuality uh, motivating that and also like resulting from it. Um, all these things that are kind of colliding together, just like they did with Emerald in, in this really weird way uh, that is related to these kind of larger themes of rare earth uh, around like the transition from childhood to adulthood. Um, and then especially in season two, I think like the position of sexuality um, in this like transition Um so I think like this this thing with Ascot um, is kind of manifesting these dicey complications around the different like axes of the show. Yeah, I think like so one thing is I think we have slightly different like reads on certain aspects of how sexuality and like straightness and uh, homosexuality like how those things come in relation. I, I also do think that like this show is season two in particular is, is bringing in like this idea of transitioning into adulthood and sexuality and how that like brings in with it, these impositions of straightness, uh, which I think also helps to like foreground here. Um, so I'm going to, quote from uh i still don't know if i can like find a a good like recording of this or something i don't know if it exists um but i'll continue to look and try and add it to um like we're excited stuff where people could actually watch it but uh back in 2016 at the different games conference i saw a presentation by juan f belmont uh called deviant male identities in japanese rpgs heterosexual heroes gay villains um and one of the the key things that I came away from this with was something that I had to some degree intuited and also kind of noticed in some other writings around like portrayals of homosexuality in Japan. But I think this this like helped um, give me like a, a clearer here's just like a full understanding of that, which I kind of alluded to actually in some of our our Ava episodes, but um, that the way that like uh, homosexual behaviors are are framed in Japan. Um, the like schema around it is slightly different than the United States, where those behaviors uh, can sometimes still be more acceptable as long as you like fulfill in adulthood these other roles that society expects of you, like having a normal job and having a family that's like a procreative family. Um, and so there's a certain amount of like it being fine, like it, it being fine if the arrangement that someone ends up with is like a gay man and a lesbian marry each other and like have a kid to like keep the f- keep families going. And then 
also have as the agreement that they're like having sex, like homosexual sex beyond that. (laughs) And that's like most of what their sexual relationships are. Um, Mm -hmm. Those things like that possibility is more. um, There's a certain amount of like, you don't really talk about it, but it is like more acceptable within Japan or, or people are going to be more willing to like look away or like just not talk about it. If you're still just like keeping up the pretense and one of the biggest things that this shows up in, I mean, this is the thing that I alluded to with Evangelion, is this, like, concept that's often translated as, like, age of discretion or something like that. But this, like, idea of when you are a child, like, before you graduate from high school, before you, like, enter the adult world in the sense of, like, now you're expected to have a job, now you're expected to get married and have kids and a family. Um, within that, like homosexual experimentation is more accepted than it might be like compared to the U S and that it certainly is in adulthood that like there's, there's this amount which kind of exists in the U S as well. Like this is one of the Mm -hmm. things that um, for me growing up in like Midwestern homophobic society that like resonates with me, especially in some of the older anime where some of this stuff like, also has the sense of like maintaining the illusion of the closet is important um as well as this idea of like homosexuality is okay if it is a stage that you mm. go through in childhood and then like exit out of um and i i think that the show specifically recognizing that there is like homosexual things that could be happening especially in the first season but also in this second season um, but is now like more directly problematizing like, but these girls are entering into adulthood and that means that the expectations on them are changing where like Hikaru just staying with Umi and Fu is not like that there needs to be straightness entering into that to like mm-hmm. become socially acceptable. But yeah. I, I, I also want to frame it around this way of like socially considering it of like my understanding from this talk is that within Japan, it could still be acceptable for there to be some sort of like homosexual relationship that would then still persist between these girls. As long as there is also this like straight component that then fits into like social expectations for like families and continuing family lines and things. Um, And so like, I want to have that here as we continue to talk about this and then, yeah, when when we get to the the our final episode on this series, I'm going to end up bringing in more <laughs> queer theory to like further problematize this and how I think the show is, is in some ways like um, aspects of queer theory is actually trying to like reframe this idea of stage. But we we will get there. I want to like get to the end of the show before I like really start putting all of that out. <laughs> But um, I think that yeah. like helps color this bath scene where at once it is like, like Hikaru is very embarrassed in like a homosexual way about being like pressed up against Caldina's boobs. Mm-hmm. Um, even I think like the framing around Hikaru thinking and like there's a double meaning and I think you can read both meetings in this scene of Hikaru being like, she says like, it would be nice yes. if you, like it would be uh nice and soft if you had big breasts and that you could be this hypothetical you of like, it would be nice if I did because then Lantis would like me. 
but mm-hmm. also is saying it to Umi in a way that could then be read as, Umi, it would be nice and soft if you had big breasts. <laughs> like, I would enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, um, I had to rewind and, like, double check, and I was like, I wanted to make sure I was reading the line the right way, and I was like, oh, I think they're being deliberately, like, ambiguous here. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a really good moment, I think. Um, and I, I think, like, that that tension between, like, the homosexual and the heterosexual readings like continues to be um intentional for me throughout the show uh yeah like this continues to show up with nova as well where nova continues to refer to the people that hikaru loves um and never really explains like what is different about lantis in a Mm -hmm. way where you can then read that difference in like lantis is problematizing Hikaru's relationship with like Umi and Fu, but there are many different ways to read that beyond just like, oh, this is the heterosexual, like actual sexual romantic love, and that this is her friends. Like, that is one reading that is possible in here, but I think this show is like very intentionally playing with like these aspects of queer baiting. And when I think t- gets to the end, like, never actually resolves it in a like, and then people are straight now. <laughs> Mm-hmm. way um but we'll get there we, we can argue about that when we get there <laughs> yeah well, I... this, oh, this moment ahead. of like um ambiguity ambiguity with like who she's talking about is then immediately followed by like um you know oh he could you look so cute now that like your hair is down you look more feminine <laughs> <clears throat> But most of the time when we see her, she's got her hair up, and that makes her look more boyish. Um, And, like, I think the show is just playing around with in a really interesting way. Like, um, you know, like, the show does not then say, oh, she should act more feminine all the time. Only just that these characters find her more cute when she is acting feminine but it seems like in her day-to-day life she's enjoying it being more masculine you know um and I, I don't have like a big takeaway from that i just think it's like a i appreciated like getting that insight into um what the characters have going on i guess yeah yeah i think um i think the tension that that you described neve is like <laughs> I'm I'm glad that you uh, took a moment to like set that up because it, at least like here and at least as a starting point, like I, I think that maps out like what what is at what is largely at stake here with a lot of this stuff. Um, my impression is that like there, there is a level on which, like, Rare Season 2 enacts this movement um, that that you described from, like, this, uh, from, like, the potential of, like, homosexuality to, like, the kind of, um, if not entirely foreclosure of it, like, the uh, constraining of it. Um, by like straightness and by heteronormativity um, and the conditioning of it. Um, but at the same time, like what I think is interesting is like potentialities within within a work. And that's why like 
again, I don't think Rayearth, like, the fact that we can even, like, sit here and agree that, like, okay, yeah, Rayearth, like, these are the, like, relationships that exist in Rayearth, and this, like, uh, the the map that you showed me earlier where it's like, okay, yeah, Hikaru is in a relationship with Lantis and her girlfriends, and we'll get there, but, like, he, like also there's yeah. Eagle, like, Geo and Eagle are, like, boyfriends. Lantis isn't, like, and Eagle are in love with each other, but they're, like, exes. The fact that we can even, like, agree that all of these things are clearly set up um, creates, like, a potentiality that can't be... Even if, like, again, like, on my reading, even if the show on one level is dramatizing this real tension that, like, it that is present in society and that is experienced by people um, and is reflecting this aspect of like, you know, social reality um, in, in some of the larger movements that it does um, at the very same time, it is opening up all of this space that we can, that we can equally like look at and enjoy and be like, Hey, this is not like foreclosed that this tension like exists in the series as like a tension that is not i agree that is not like fully uh resolved like in in favor of like, one side or the other like it at the end of the series i think these these two things are still very much like present and yeah uh i don't know we may we may argue about that later we may argue now um <laughs> because uh i think uh i kind of want to get into the bath scene and like really get into specifically like how this is playing out in the content um i think you know it's funny because in our uh in our prior conversations like last week uh in our group chat i felt like y'all were like oh yeah the bath scene is like moderately interesting and I was like, what are you talking about? This past seems incrededly <laughs> interesting. Um, oh, yeah, now, no, this is great. Yeah. Yeah, and now we're talking about it, and I'm like, yeah, you all, you all did think it was interesting. Um, <laughs> after all. Um, but for me, like, this scene is uh, incredibly uh, remarkable in the fact that it's, like, this... At least my experience watching it the first time, I was like okay, this is, like, a shocking eruption of, like, explicit sexuality uh, in this series that, like, aside from some of the stuff with Caldina um, in season one, those, like, kind of the leering shots of her body and whatever, where it's just localized to her character only, um, like, nothing like this is really present or common in Rare Earth, and especially when you think of, like, the genre, um, it... It just, uh, it is kind of jarring, like, all of a sudden, like, the specific focus on, like, physical sexuality. And again, like, this is tying into, you know, um, this is fleshing out this whole, like, childhood to adulthood thing. Uh, maybe, like, not in that rigid of, you know, in the, in those rigid terms or in that rigid formulation. Um, but it's related to, like, all the stuff that's happening around this, um, this problem that we were talking about. And for me, like there's a lot of 
stuff that happens around like straightness and heteronormativity in this scene. Um, this this kind of intrusion of straightness is like played out in not only in like Hikaru. Um, there's a dialogue where um, part of the dialogue that you mentioned, where it's like, "Oh, I, I don't, um, I don't think I'm cute. Like, I think I look like a boy." Um, it's eventually like they're like, "Oh, but don't doesn't anyone tell you you're cute?" And she's like, "Oh, my um, my brothers do, but like other guys don't." Um, and then Caldina's speeches. Uh, Caldina is kind of giving this monologue, um, and says specifically like oh alcione like you know who has really big breasts it's alcione and like well i bet uh like men really love like men who like big breasted women really love alcione like blah 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 um and as all this discussion is happening around characters like bodies being analyzed and discussed amongst themselves um there is this constant like pull um this directionality towards straightness that's being posited um, where it's it's constantly s- circling back around to their bodies being either validated by men in the sense of like, oh, other guys don't tell me I'm cute. Um, do men like big breasts? Um, and then like, oh, I'm upset because I don't have any. Um, and then also uh, being enjoyed by men. Uh, CF, like Caudina's speech about... Uh, big you know men liking her large breasts etc um then there's uh in my opinion like this clear implication um hikaru is very like flustered and embarrassed and someone uh, i i believe it's one of the girls is like oh do you have someone on your mind um you know around all of this stuff about your like anxiety around your body and being validated um and then uh, it, again, debatable, um, but this could be seen as her, like, thinking about Lantis, especially in uh, with regard to, like, this kind of thrust that I'm describing where so much of this conversation is, at least what is said explicitly, is trending towards, like, uh, some sort of, like, uh, relation to men or like validation by men and this is a moment where like there are these obvious uh and like very uh robust homoerotic homoerotic potentialities uh in the scene um which neve i'm sure you will um you have discussed already and will uh and and uh neve and autumn will probably talk about um which are present um but then there is this um, and what is actually said and, and what is like above the surface, um, this kind of gravitational pull, this palp- uh, palpable like directionality towards straightness. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, the scene is uh, a great example of like the tension that we're talking about, where these uh, all of these things are kind of uh th- this this conflict is is playing out almost yeah um this this is also one where like 
So I kind of mapped out a few different readings as well, which ties in, I think, with like what's already happening in this bath scene and then like continues through to like Nova's attempts to uh, tempt Hikaru like towards darkness that first are like turned against Umi and Fu. And then it brings up like you love Lantis, but it's different than the way that you love Umi and Fu. Yeah. And again, it's, like that's that, said a few times. Yeah. And that that like never gets like fully explained in this moment of like what the actual full difference is and so i kind of like mapped out like what are different ways of reading what's happening with uh hikaru's like uh fears and anxieties around lantis in particular uh compared to umi and fu um and so of course like i i write write this as the boring straight reading but like the one that is like obviously there and is being played with is umi and fu Hikaru loves them as like best friends, right? Like it's like this like girlhood friendship. The difference is that she loves Lantis and wants Lantis as a lover. And that's like the here it's like she's fully a straight girl and that reading is possible that is like figured in the way that this is being framed. But I think there are other readings. Um one of the other ones that is like really heavily framed by the the series as well, I think is um that like the the love that Hikaru has for Umi and Fu is uncomplicated, and then Lantis is problem uh, problematizing it. And I think the the one that's like obviously framed is just that like, sorry, my cat is going <laughs> scratching at my door because this happens all the time when I record this late. But I was anyway, I was wondering what that what that sound was. Um, so one of the readings is just that like, you know. Hikaru met Umi and Fu and they like became friends and fell in love in this like uncomplicated way in the first season where they didn't really have prior uh, complicating histories. I'm going to try again and see if letting Ollie in is going to help. But, like They didn't have like prior complicating histories to work through. Um, and so this, this is just like a love that was, was simpler and easier, uh, easier to enter into. Whereas this is the part that like, is canonically brought up multiple mm -hmm. times in the show um, is the like most clearly canonically given reason for like, why is Hikaru having these um, anxieties and fears around Lantis is that she killed Zagato Lantis's brother and is like afraid that because she did that Lantis is going to hate her. Um, and this mm -hmm. is like a thing that she apologizes for before Lantis can like really say anything else if something happens. Um, like it like continues to come up. Um, and so that's another way that you can read this that like could tie into doing a straight reading, but also does not necessarily that can explain away in and of itself. I have an uncomplicated relationship with these two girls who I love. I then like, this is complicated because of the prior history with like, people before I even met Lantis that is like making this difficult. This is making this love seem difficult and I'm afraid of. Um, the The other part, and this part I think will also become an important reading as we get more into, like we've talked about how this show is setting up Hikaru as the, the new pillar. And I think this thing like ties into that, into some of my reading, what's happening with like how stuff will resolve around Hikaru and, um, the pillar of Sephiro and everything, which is that 
you know, you you talked about like the map that I sent in the group chat, but like <laughs> my my read when I'm watching this, like what I'm getting the most out of this is seeing Hikaru as someone who is like polyamorous and is in this polycule with these two other girls. And that part of the tension is actually around bringing in another person into that like relationship that you already have with these two people. And knowing that, like, bringing in another person is going to complicate the relationship that you already have with, like, these people that you love. Um, and that also is then fearful around it being, I love these two girls and now I'm bringing in this man. That there's, like, rather than it being straightness and um, homosexuality, there is instead, like, this more bisexual desire happening here. And the fears that, like, exist and... Uh, also happened for people within the queer community around like, oh, like people expect me to be homosexual, like a lesbian. And if I'm entering into this relationship with someone else that's like bisexual, are then people going to question the like legitimacy of my queerness? Which is a thing that like can resonate with me as well when I'm I'm watching this and I think is also like a, a reading that is possible and that will also then become like as I'm further doing my my counter to the like straight reading <laughs> of the ending when we get there so i like want to lay those out as like potential ways of reading what's happening between um like hikaru umi fu and lantis in these moments and like why those loves are different and it's that this love with lantis throughout multiple different readings is something that is more problematizing and complicated than like the existing relationship that she has um, and that does not necessarily have to be because it's friends and then a lover. There are like other ways that even within reading this is like they all love each other in this like lover sense. Still, Lantis entering can like problematize those relationships in ways that mm -hmm. there are like anxieties that you you might have around it. So, I do also yeah. just want to um, <laughs> note something that we hadn't talked about, which is that. During this scene, um, there is a song playing that is about, like, a deep longing that is, like, difficult to put voice to, and, like, do I love this person, and, and all this sorts of stuff, and, like, this is coming, like, hot off the heels of, um, Hikaru's first battle with Nova, and, like, she's feeling, she's, like, very dejected, very, like, um not present in this moment and mm -hmm. as she is not present as she is reflecting on um how upset she is about uh the everything going on with nova we start to get this is this love song and i'm like just doing a thinking emoji you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean that's um i didn't notice that at all i saw like the first lyric and then i was just like Oh, this is just some like silly song about like because it's a bass scene and they're just doing like oh like happy fun time like silly song. There, um, the weird thing is, there's two vocal songs in this episode, and one there is just a ah we're gonna take a bath um song that plays during the conversation with Ascot about oh well if you were still a little kid we could totally have gotten you in the bath with Umi. Um, <laughs> That yeah. is just a silly song. Um, the one that plays during the actual bath scene uh, is 
goes like when I silently chant your name, um, it's like a refrain in my chest, like my favorite song. And it's, and <laughs> you know the last line is is this love, and it's just it's a bit on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> so I I'm very familiar with a lot of reggae th- music. So the first one that plays is uh, Makono no Ekaka Uda, which is like Makona's artistic song or something. And so it's just like this like goofy song of like in the oval egg, there are bananas too in the round yeah. lakes. There are crescents too, like blah, blah, blah. So cute. It's Makona poo. Um, I'm like reading internet translations right now. Cause I have the, the blue rays and can't just like immediately pull up the subtitles in the show. Um, whereas let me go find. So the other one is, um, a bigger song that's used multiple times throughout season two um, and was like one of the bigger singles. Uh, Soyokaze no Sonatine. So Sonatine of the Wind. <laughs> um, oh, Sonatine. Yes. Yeah, I know why you like it now. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, these are the English lyrics. When I whisper your name, it goes like a refrain in my heart, like a favorite song. When I meet you, uh, uh, when I meet with you, my heartbeats sing out just like the wind playing a piano. No matter how much I play, I couldn't become good at it. The winds of bitterness merely do a crescendo. Stars in my eyes, you in my heart, this is love. Uh, I try drawing your portrait and erase it. When I trace the memories, my heart beats fast and my cheeks just turn hot. The image of your smile won't disappear even if I erase it. I couldn't sleep even today. I tap the piano. Perhaps the heart cannot learn, but softly I would like to send a forte kindness Send a sonata of my heart, oh gentle breeze, so that this prayer reaches you, la la la, and the ends just like la la la's. Um, as a note, this one is sung by the voice actress for Fu. Um, so the three main girls, as well as the uh, Makona, have done like multiple singles for Ray Earth. <laughs> nice. I want to listen to the. I want to get an album of the Makona singles. Um, I can send them to you. I have literally every Ray Earth song that has ever been made. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do. I have make hundreds a, of Ray Earth songs. Make me a mixtape. Um, yeah. So, uh, on the, like, subject of Lantis, um, first let me say, like, uh, I feel really bad because I'm I'm very committed to the Ghost Divers project of, like, pulling out this, like, counter... Uh, this like counter uh, heteronormative reading, and uh, I know, I know that this is a reading that that you really uh, like a lot, um, and I I also like it. Uh, so I have this odd position now of being like, I perceive this other thing happening that like. <laughs> I, I want to talk about because I think it's important like um, for I think it's important for this project of of bringing out like the readings that the alternative readings that you're doing um, even though like it is even though I am focusing on like this the dynamics of like heteronormativity and how the series like it, in my eyes seems to be enacting it um I, this is not a reading that, like, I I want, but I think it's important to, like, at least discuss, like, what's going on here and have it established so that we can, like, you know, 
further bring out like exactly you know what's happening or further like we bring we out get these it. other potential you're our straight friend derogatory complimentary <laughs> uh yeah um that's also why this is an unenviable uh position a little bit to have to do this like reading where i'm like i'm i'm not like trying to tank your <laughs> your all your alternative readings here um but the stuff with Atlantis, like, this is one thing that I think is happening, um, especially in, like, in episode 34, which you've already kind of discussed. Um, so there's this scene where Prisea is, like, Hikaru is, like, deep in her mind, um, going through these memories, uh, trying to work through this, like, self-hatred and self-doubt. Um, and this pain that she's experienced. Um, and then like we've kind of described, like Nova enters into Hikaru's mind and is first is like targeting her relationships with Umi and Fu, trying to basically brainwash her, like implant false memories, um, where like Umi and Fu were, were mean to her, um, and like rejecting her and trying to, uh, you know, trying to play on, uh, a potential like weakness there. Um, but that fails. Hikaru uh, believes in Umi and Fu. Um, and so Nova is like kind of taken aback and like, ah, you defeated my evil plot. Um, but what about this? And then she like conjures an apparition of Lantis. Um, it is, this is, uh, she says again for like, I think it's the second or third time. Um, oh yes. Like Lantis, your feelings for him are different from your feelings for those two. Um, it's, I think this is interesting coming from Nova, um, who uh, is part of Hikaru or uh, one with Hikaru or whatever, um, and shows some sort of special insight into Hikaru's mind um, or some sort of empathetic connection. Um, so it, there, there is some canonical weight to like, this the fact that there's there is a difference in these feelings that nova is perceiving um and this insistence uh, on this statement that the feelings are different um the show is clearly setting up like a categorical difference um again as you were describing earlier Neve, uh a categorical difference between the kind of feelings and relationship that hikaru has with fumi um and the kind of feelings and relationship she has for lantis um, and what stands out to me in this scene is that in direct contrast to like what the kind of manipulation that Nova is attempting with respect to Umi and Fu and Hikaru's like memories and feelings about them, um, her, her attempt with Lantis is like her jumping into Lantis's like or, or being held by Lantis, jumping on him, like whispering in his ear, um, and like grappling, uh, like draping herself all over him. Um, clearly, like it, it's clearly sexually charged. Um, it's clearly like invoking some sort of sexual jealousy. Um, and with the conjunction of like Nova's statement of, oh, like, this is the entire sequence of like her 
making this attempt with Umi and Fu that has these diff- certain different characteristics, then asserting that her the difference in Hikaru's feelings for Lantis, um, and then attempting to manipulate Hikar- Hikaru um, in this way, um, centered on like this kind of physical sexuality. Um, I think the show is like not only establishing this categorical difference, but also substantiating it with uh, actual content, which is like this actualized physical sexuality. Um, And again, like in linking back to the hot springs episode, like I think certain questions are coming up for me uh, in terms of like, what is what kind of sexuality is permitted to be actualized in this world, um, and what kind of sexual relation is being like indicated and set up as like truly viable? And and when I say sexual, I mean like um, physical sexuality that we actually see um, actual, 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 uh, actualized like in the world <laughs> of uh, Sephiro. Um, and for me, that's an important distinction where that ties in on several levels to the tension that we're talking about um, where the show itself is kind of permitting and uh, it is, it is creating these barriers where uh, certain types of sexuality, um, certain utterances around sexuality, like in the hot spring scene, um, what is actually said, what is actually shown and done is, uh, trending towards this heteronormativity. Um, whereas like this, you know, what is relegated to the realm of like unsaid and not done, um, is often like this, uh, this homosexual, like romance or this homosexual, like sexuality. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is characteristic of like a larger, a larger movement. Um, and a larger, like, thrust of season two um, and how the show, I think, is, like, reflecting the tensions that you talked about before and, and dramatizing it in some ways. Yeah, there's, there is a degree, though, to which I want to resist being, like, the fact that homosexuality is unnamed means that it is not, like, uh, that that this means that the show is, is moving towards... Uh, like in a very clear way, heterosexuality, because this is from an era of animation, even within Japan, where like there's this term queer baiting that exists. And I have talked multiple times, not as much on this podcast, but like um, I think there's a generational divide, like me being older and having like been watching this stuff as a kid. um, I've talked to other people who are like more from like, you know, around my age or older where we have a different feeling for, uh, when it comes to queer baiting than like a lot of, especially like much younger queer kids today, because at the time a show doing something like this was very clearly talking about queerness in the ways that it could, um, that 
being forthright in the way that something might be able to be today was not possible within the like m- methods of producing shows. Yeah. Um, Utena we are ge- going to be watching next is one of the gayest shows ever. There are stuff <laughs> that does actually feel very explicit there. And yet there are still many ways in which um, like the understanding at the time that Utena was being made and that like I was watching it in high school there was lots of complaints that it was also queer baiting or like that was like a thing, like a lot of queer readings were ones that other people resisted the way that it was also localized at the time further effaced some of the queerness, the way that it was marketed, um, set up the like straight relationships in that anime in a way that like we will get there, but that shows like very clearly not interested in, um, asserting some sort of like straight finality to it. And part of the reason why I'm like, let's talk about a lot of these anime in conjunction is that I think like Evangelion, Ray Earth, and Utena are all trying to talk about like queerness. And in some ways, Utena just benefits from like having come after Ray Earth. Like Mm -hmm. Utena is allowed to say more within the industry because I think to some degree, stuff like Ray Earth and other magical girl anime that was touching on this like was doing these things and you know uh like card captor sakura is allowed to actually coming out like basically after ray earth shortly after from clamp is allowed to talk about stuff more directly as well and so i don't want to like say that this show is asserting straightness as the like the thrust of it when in fact like the amount that it is uh concerned with queerness that it is like presenting queerness and that i think continues to keep that possibility open even throughout the ending in a way that actually a lot of shows wouldn't um is actually a thing that is like deeply queer um that is like deeply pushing towards like actually asserting a different possibility beyond heteronormative society as the outcome for these characters and again like we'll get to the final 10 episodes and we can like talk about that more but this this is the part where like if this show was made right now in the United States, I would more agree with your reading, but the context of the, like when and where this is being made and what it is trying to say. Um, and, and so this is like the thing with queer baiting is that like, I often watch queer bait, like things that would be quote unquote queer baiting. And that a lot of like younger queer people might say like, Oh, it's really problematic because it doesn't do these things as being in fact, actually very true about what it meant to be queer when I was like actually watching this stuff, which was that like often you were still talking about these things, but in a way that like you, you couldn't be explicit about it because being explicit about it would like fuck up your whole shit (laughs) in a Mm -hmm. way um, that you just like, you didn't have access to, but you were still talking about it. Um, I forget if I said this on Ghost Divers or if I said this, I think I probably said it in the Hot Singles episode we were talking about Lou Reed, but like I listened to the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and like people would talk about those songs and I grew up in a part of the Midwest where people knew that Lou Reed was the like a gay man (laughs) or you know queer in some way like we've talked about like the complexities of trying to um put modern labels onto like who lou reed was but (laughs) 
within the part of like rural suburban Michigan that I grew up in, you could not say these songs that are very, very, very clearly talking about like transsexual people or like gay sex or like kink. Like you could not actually say that this is like queer or gay. In fact, that terminology was often foreclosed from me. Um, especially I could perhaps talk about gayness because I was in like a quote unquote liberal family. I did not in any way have terminology to talk at all about transness or like other forms of queerness beyond like a very clearly demarcated sense of gayness that in fact Lou Reed complicated in a way that like I then could not talk about what is queer about Lou Reed because I did not even really have the word queer as like a thing that is distinct from like homosexual men and lesbians. Right. Um, like gay as a thing, <laughs> like gay, lesbian, homosexual, homo. Like those were the words and those words were like what they meant was far more like solidified and as a thing that you should not be, that you should not want to be as well. Um, in a way that like watching it as a, you know, I talked about how I first watched stuff from Ray Earth, like a tape that had, you know, tapes back then had like two or three episodes and it was from season two and me understanding in a nonverbal way, the queerness that was happening and that it was an incredibly queer show and I was drawn to it and also felt shame around that. Um, and that is in a way that I think like it being quote unquote queer baiting because it is not able to like directly say this it is actually not in any way for me something that like says so that because it can talk more directly about the like straight relationships that it is not actually talking very deeply about the queer relationships here as well it's just talking in a way that like I am familiar with because I had to talk in that same way and it is like perhaps a linguistic mode that being a closeted like queer kid in a homophobic society (laughs) You, like, learn the language of how people are talking about these things, um, where obviously you're also seeing this, Connor, but I, I, like, I do want to, I do want to resist, like, this notion that because it does not specifically say the queerness, and it more specifically, or, like, clearly says the straightness, that means that it is pushing towards straightness, and not that it is trying to talk about these things and talk about these things in like complex and messy ways in the only way that it like the only language that it has. No, um, I, I agree completely. And I don't mean to, um, what I mean to say is that what the way I look at rare is like, like any thing that we talked about in ghost divers, like this is a text that was created in like a specific time and place. And reflects like the realities of that time and place in a multitude of ways. And I think there are many different axes within Ray Earth, like uh, many different axes of movement where this like signification is working and moving. Um, And I think it's, it's only on one axis is what I'm trying to say. Like only on one axis does it, move in this way and i think that is a reflection of exactly what you're talking about um yeah. i think this, Earth, like can it, it reflects has and to have it. yeah it like has to have a straight reading a straight ending reading in order to be acceptable enough to be put out and then be talking about these other potential readings like there's a certain amount of 
people talk about this more directly when there are like very clear sensors and like uh you know really controlling uh sensor situations of like how you have to talk about things where you can do the reading that you tell to the sensors where you're like oh clearly this is a movie about how great the like fascist state is or whatever but then there's also another reading that is like revolutionary or like counter that um and i think a lot of stuff that is like called quote unquote queer baiting is in fact trying to like sneak in uh, especially when it's from these like time periods is trying to like talk about those things in a way that can like get past the societal censors. Um, yeah. And, and even in a way that's like very distinct from like, Oh, they're doing queer baiting in this Marvel movie where like Disney, you could just fucking say that they're gay um, and actually talk about it meaningfully, but you're not going to, cause you're fucking Disney. Um, like you don't actually care about us. You just want our money. <laughs> well, and even like beyond the, reality even beyond like the realities of production and the constraints that like that existed for getting a show produced um like in that time period even beyond like the realities of that and beyond the like intentions of the creators um i think it's just like the show itself, like the way that we receive it, uh, and like the like the symbolic logic of the show and what it actually does, it like in of itself, like it reflects. Like we don't have to look through it to like find I mean it's perfectly valid and correct, like, to do that. Um, but we don't even have to look like through the show, like behind the curtain to be like, oh, like they just had to do this because like they, you know, it wouldn't have been able to be made otherwise. Um, I think like the, in the show itself, like the, the potentialities of meaning and what it actually like um, does with like the relation of themes and symbols uh, and how it, uh, how it puts those things into motion. Like it, in a very uh, significant way, like in of itself reflects like the, like the way it, that th- certain like things it, are suppressed. Yeah. Like, it is like talking about the pressures of straightness that exist in that society. Yes. And like in, in, in the ways that I'm talking about, like the, the show is, I feel like it's dramatizing them by like enacting them in a way um, it contains within it, like, the, the mechanism by which, like, these pressures impose onto people and constrain their, like, sexuality. And on one level, like, it shows that. Um, but at the very same time, like, it has, uh, again, like, all of these potentialities that, um, that you and we are, like, uh, discussing, um, that it, I, again to me like reflects this um this tension in this time and place like where you know in 90s japan like queerness did exist obviously um and people were like people were living their lives and like having like homosexual relationships and like queer relationships um but within the constraints of like a society that was you know imposing like this hegemony 
that you described, um, that of the kind that you described earlier, um, from the, uh, from the talk that you, that you saw. And, and that's what is really interesting to me. Like when I, <laughs> we talked about this at length, uh, last night when we did the question bucket for Ava. Um, but when I'm really looking at like, how is this text working and what it's doing? I'm like, the text itself is like reflecting this, this tension. And it, it has these like different, all of this is like swirling around and is like, mm-hmm. uh, in present in like the, the movement of, of the series itself. Yeah. I, so like, I feel like we can talk about the gin a little bit more when we get to like, just in the interest of time, if we, if we <laughs> want to talk about it, we can talk about it more when we get to the next five episodes um, because they will continue to show up. Um, there's like one thing that I wanted to, to say before I kick it to the next episodes, but I don't know if you have anything like either of you have anything that you want to bring up first. Uh, I, I might have a small something, but it might actually be the same thing that you're going to kick it to. So I don't know. Um, you do yours first. Cause I don't, I don't know if it's the same as mine. And I, if it, you, you can do it anyway, even if it's the thing I was going to do. I don't have a, uh, I don't have a take about this. I don't have like a read on this. Fuck Clef. Fuck this fake Persea <laughs> for just deciding like, ah, we have to lie to Hikaru so that she's never hurt again. Fuck all these people. <laughs> Yeah, I think that I think that warrants a conversation. Um, the, all this stuff around like fake Persea. Um, mm-hmm. I know you want to, Neva. I know you want to move on to the next episodes, but um, it's really I, I think appropriate to talk about it here since we get this big reveal. Um, so yeah, uh, the Persea we see is like fake Persea, um, Persea's twin sister, and. At least for me, I'll just do my bit quickly and then, uh, you know, in the interest of time. Um, I think it's interesting how uh, Persea's sister, who, like, at this point, we don't, like, get her name because... Yeah. Yeah, because she, like, literally enacts this self-effacement. She is, like, the conversation you were referencing, Autumn... Like she talks with Clef about like, oh no, I have to pretend to be Persea because too many like everyone else would be very upset if they knew Persea was dead. Um, so like who I am is now irrelevant um, because I need to like become Persea f- for others. And so not only is her like name suppressed, um, but then this weird thing happens where it is, you know, she also is like it's revealed that Persea was in love with Clef. And then it is immediately thereafter revealed that Persea's sister is in love with Clef. Um, so this is literally like Persea's sister, like effacing herself entirely and becoming Persea. Um, and for me, this is just like, I think we talked about this a lot in season one, but it's ties into this larger question of freedom, uh, which also is very relevant to everything we we're just talking about. Um, Rayearth is often seems seems to be asking like, can we really be who we want to be or who we are, mm-hmm. um, or must we become like to some extent what the world or what society demands of us or needs from right. us? 
Um, so that's like, I don't know, that's kind of my take on, on this scene, at least so far. Um, yeah, and yeah. I I don't know if you have other specific thoughts on that, Autumn, but... No, I just, I was just, um, I just don't trust this short motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I, like, there is a certain amount where I think also, um, Clef, and to, to some degree, like, Prisea here as well, like, but Clef in particular is someone who continues to be, uh, like, I will do these lies or I will, like, I will keep this thing going because like, well, society has to continue. Like we have Mm -hmm. to find a new pillar. Uh, Safira has to like go back to what it was. Um, Like Clef is very uh, like, I I also say fuck Clef (laughs) because Mm -hmm. this is like Clef continues to just be like, well, I have to do what's quote unquote good, which is often just like a return to the status quo. Um, I, a, I have or like to an return to the status quo and also um, in order to fulfill my duties it just so happens that I have to constantly lie to these girls so that they're always in the emotional <laughs> state that I need them to be in to fulfill my goals yeah um, and that it is important for like them to fulfill the role that they need to fulfill and so I'm going to just like lie by omission to make sure that they're continuing to fulfill their role. And Prisea mm-hmm. is doing this or fake Prisea um, as well in the, in this way that also like I, I know is that Prisea in season one, I mean, we don't get a lot of her, but like she is generally uh, like a lot goofier and fun and um, like not in love with Clef. <laughs> yeah um <laughs> but like just like like let me so I, I don't know exactly where they got this from but um one of the like websites that i've been using to uh do the synopses and like make sure i'm not missing stuff um has stuff that i think are from like the statistics that were published in the original manga um and so for Prisea. Uh, what she likes is uh, buoy tech, a kind of fruit in Sephiro. Uh What she hates is a messy room and her hobby is punishment. <laughs> and that just like suggests something about uh, original Prisea that like does not seem to be suggested by this Prisea. Um, yeah, this Prisea does not the... seem to be into femdoming Clef. <laughs> and you can see it in the, the treatment of Makona. Um, like Every interaction that fake Prisea has with Makona is like very gentle and like yeah, not at all what we see from Prisea uh, in season. I hadn't one. thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to reveal the name. We do learn the the name of fake Prisea, but um, was never in the manga, so there are no statistics for her that I can mm. give. I did look her up. Um, when we get to the name of fake Prisea, I will of course do the card that she's based off of, but I, I have intentionally omitted that. (laughs) Um, the one other thing that I just had before I kick it over, because this kind of ties into stuff that then happens, um, 
in like the next five episodes that we're going to discuss is one thing that I do think is interesting and like further uh, problematizes like a clean um, reading of like Lantis as this like straight uh, like this is the straightness that like Hikaru like yearns for or something like the you're talking about the way that like Nova is like draped over and like you know, having this like more sexual display with Lantis, mm. but also a thing that, and this will get like said in the next episodes, but a thing that is like canonical to the way that Nova works, um, that, you know, when we get to the final 10 episodes, it'll like be fully explained, but that like Nova is connected to Hikaru's heart, but is this like in some ways inversion or that is like reflecting some part of, um, like these parts that like Hikaru might be suppressing or whatever, but that are like directly inverted along this line of who you love. I hate who you hate. I love. Um, and so I hate Umi and Fu, these girls that you love. And it's in this very uncomplicated way where I just want to like kill them. I hate them. Um, I love you because you hate yourself is the thing that will get like specifically said in the next five episodes we're going to discuss having it be then like you love Lantis, which would then imply I hate Lantis, but what I am doing are these like demonstrations of love as well. I think is suggesting a more complicated thing. Like in Nova, we'll see throughout this, like hanging on Lantis. There's a part like towards the very end of the episodes that we watched where she like goes to kiss him. Mm-hmm. Um, and says to him, like, I am going to kill Hikaru. That is suggesting that there's, like, some hate that Hikaru has towards Lantis. That it, like, that is a more complicated thing than I think, like, having just a, a more clear, like, oh, Hikaru is straight and is having these straight feelings for this boy would, like, necessarily, unless we're doing the, like, Ano thinks that loving someone means that to some degree you also hate someone, which I actually like, I feel like is not what's happening here. I guess you could do that reading, but like the way that Nova has this, like is invoking sexual jealousy, but that also within the like canonical way that Nova works is implying that there's like, it it is leaning towards, I think Hikaru having some sort of like fear or hatred around like this heterosexuality or like, men or like dealing with it in a way that like further complicates it beyond the initial direct reading. Um, and it never gets like directly stated in the same way, but the show will continue to assert this, like who you love. I hate who you hate. I love in a way where like, I think we still have to like think intentionally about what is it then doing? And we can like talk about it more as we get to the next five episodes and get into this further. But like by having Nova, also seem to like both love and hate in in various ways lantis so <laughs> um but i think that's we we can maybe do the next five episodes yeah yeah so moving on to episodes 35 through 39 same recording um, session <laughs> yes <laughs> no time is best um would you like to do the synopsis autumn no well, 
Okay, I thought <laughs> I thought we all had a chuckle fucks out by now, but <laughs> okay, okay, I'm hey, done. We can I'm switch done. if you want. You can do mine. No, I'll do yours. No, I will. I will just um, you know, actually participate in the podcast as I have agreed to. Uh, Eagle and Geo prepare to launch soon in the FB. Uh, in the FTO and the GTO, and then Geo suggests Eagle rests in his room until it's time to stage the attack. We then get a brief recap of the stuff with Nova, Hikaru, and Lantis before shifting to the main to the main focus of the episode: Umi on the Ravada. We get Chizeta fashion Umi as she bickers with Tarda and engages in a duel, which Umi wins. Guards surround Umi, but Tatra tells them to stand down as Umi merely accepted her sister's request for a duel in one fair and square, then invites Umi to a tea party. Over tea, uh, Tarda explains that they are invading Sephiro in order because uh, Chisetta has become overpopulated and so they're looking for a new land to colonize, I guess. Question mark. Umi explains that being the Pillar of Sephiro sucks, actually, and leaves. Tarda and Tatra send the Jin after her, but she manages to fight them off with more shitty homophobic jokes, of course, before having a new type flash about Hikaru in danger. Fu also has a new type flash, and then we get far in fashion Fu as she is brought before Lady Asuka. Uh, Lady Asuka demands that Fu gives her a rune god, uh, even after Fu explains it doesn't work quite like that. Uh, Fu then suggests an archery competition. Uh, if Asuka wins, Fu will give her Wyndham, but if Fu wins, uh, Asuka has to let her go. Uh, Asuka accepts and takes them to the holodeck <laughs> on their ship. Uh, Asuka chooses to use many Jin illusions as targets, further perpetuating this joke. Uh, meanwhile, Hikaru awakens in a strange dream space, like the top of a cave that drips water upwards towards a pool above. Very evocative. Um, but also where things move as if underwater as well. Um, Hikaru once again remembers to hold on to that dream, wish, whatever, uh, take your pick, and tries to break through the surface of the water above, but is stopped by Nova. Um, elsewhere, Umi continues to fight the Jin and is saved by Ascot, who arrives with his beast to aid her, um, in a pairing that the show seems to uh, continue forcing on us. Um and oh, you're we'll calling yourself the show of, now? We'll have to make sense of probably later on. <laughs> um, back on the dome, Asuka is so disgusted by the many Jin illusions, she herself shows that she loses her cool and in turn ultimately loses against Fu's calm and assured archery skills. Uh, Fu tries to claim her prize and tries to leave, uh, but Asuka reneges on her deal uh, and tries to stop her with ninja guards. And there's that joke, aforementioned joke about Chinese ninjas. Um, then Fu totally owns the ninjas uh, without hurting them because, like, pacifism. Uh, and then Asuka prepares to attack Fu herself by summoning uh, flying swords. Uh, Fu successfully blocks the flying swords using her wind magic and then binds Lady Asuka using winds of admonishment, which is my favorite. Uh, magic spell name in this entire series. Uh, Fu questions Asuka's intentions for Sephiro, and when Asuka reveals that she believes that if she becomes the next pillar, she will become more beautiful like Emerald was, uh, Fu says, like, so who do you want to be beautiful for? Um, and kind of, like Asuka kind of quietly with the 
look of her eyes reveals to Fu that she loves Sangyoung. Um, Fu explains that the pillar of Sephiro is forbidden having romantic attachments and that must love the nation, uh, must love the people of Sephiro only. Um, at this moment, Ferio bursts into the hollow deck to rescue Fu and they flee together. Um, but then as they're like leaving on one of the flying beasts from Clef, uh, Fu is angry at Ferio for putting himself in danger to help her. Um, and then also has a new type flash about Hikaru, uh, in the dream world, we, we return and Nova's just like beating the absolute shit out of Hikaru and tells her, I hate everything you love. So because you hate yourself, I love you. And Hikaru is like, wait, I hate myself. Um, which mood, I guess, uh, Nova is about, <laughs> Nova is about to kiss Hikaru. Yeah. Um, and there's like extremely like, threatening villain music as Nova is about to kiss Hikaru. Uh, but then Prasea once again, like pops into this dream realm, um, through the, the Escudo. Yeah. And reminds her again of her goal. Um, Hikaru goes full super Saiyan here, revives her sword and then finally fights back against Nova. Um, and then in the room with Prasea, a ghostly Nova leaves Hikaru's body and briefly goes to embrace and like sort of kiss Lantis before vanishing, um, saying, I will kill Hikaru. Um, then Hikaru begins to awaken and seeing Lantis says, I'm sorry, but I love you. Uh, also a big mood. And Devonair appears outside the castle and prepares to destroy Umi and Fu. Uh, but then they like synchronize their wishes or something with Clef in order to be teleported back Gross. to the castle. They um, synchronize their hearts, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Let your heart be your guiding key. Thank you. Hikaru visits a weak Prasea and they briefly discuss Lantis. Umi and Kaldina then visit a recovering Ascot and in the process, Kaldina jokes about Umi liking Clef. Umi says, don't joke around and leaves suddenly. We'll circle back to this. I'm upset. Uh, <laughs> Fu and Ferio are straight at each other for a bit. Geo and Eagle talk, and Eagle basically gets up on his toes to close the problematic account and nearly kisses Geo while they talk about how Geo watched over Eagle while he slept. They fucking. Oh, they fucking. <laughs> he could do. Uh, meets with Lantis. Uh, it becomes clear she doesn't remember telling Lantis that she loves him, but and she is still nervous that he hates her, but ends up getting distracted by birds. <laughs> Lantis once again notes how flowers bloom, even without a pillar, and gives Hikaru a pendant of protection. The NSX approaches the castle and uh, fires the Laguna Cannon. Uh, that's from Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, which Clef manages to block once, uh, but is now too drained to continue to protect the castle. Eagle, having analyzed the Magic Knight's strengths and weaknesses, develops a plan to take out Fu first, to weaken their defenses and healing abilities, then captures Umi as, and uses her as a shield to counter Hikaru. Awesome. Meanwhile, Alcione uh, breaks free from the bubble as Debonair cackles. Uh, Eagle uh, throws Umi and uh, Hikaru and they embrace, or at Hikaru, I guess. Um, and they embrace as Hikaru is glad her girlfriend is still okay instead of chasing after Eagle. Um, once she finally stops hugging Umi, 
uh, Geo and GTO intercedes to try and stop her from chasing after Eagle, uh, who's beginning to shoot the castle for a comically long period of time to try to breach the wall. Um, inside, Alcione opens the door for Debonair and her monsters. Um, and then back outside the castle, Geo begins gaining ground in the fight against Hikaru. Um, but Fu returns in Wyndham and heals up both of her girlfriends. Um, Hikaru handily breaks from Geo and goes to confront Eagle, um, with her girlfriends now fighting Geo. Um, and Hikaru, uh, confronts Eagle, warning him about the requirements for being a pillar, you know, kind of, uh, dumbfounded that he still wants to do this even after learning the truth. Uh, but Eagle, uh, says he doesn't think it's a curse at all. Um, he's happy to sacrifice himself for his beloved nation of Autozam. Um, back inside the castle, uh, just all hell is breaking loose. Monsters are swimming everywhere. And uh, Lantis, Lafarga, Caldino, and Furio are basically trying to defeat them. Um, Lantis finds Alcione, like, you know, passed out or whatever, uh, and goes to her and picks her up or something. Uh, Geo continues to keep Umi and Fu at bay. While Hikaru and Eagle, like, basically just have it out. Um, they fight in their mechs. They then, like, get inside the castle, disembark, uh, fight on foot, uh, and, you know, just dueling, essentially. Um, meanwhile, Debonair enters the crown room with Lantis following behind. Um, and then Emerald, like, who, whose soul is still in the crown or whatever, um, speaks, rebu uh, rebuking Debonair, uh, and blasting her and the monsters away with a bright light, which also, like, renders apparently everyone unconscious. Um, and then, uh, the final shot is, um, like, Hikaru and Eagle laying unconscious near each other, um, bathed in this white light of Emerald. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting, uh, interesting conclusion here. Um, I hope both of you will scroll down and to the <laughs> screenshot I took. It's a good one. Yeah, it's yeah. a good one. <laughs> I really, I really identified with this moment. Um, I, I, I think I've probably looked like that many times in my life. I like this batch of episodes, and I understand that, like, often as shows are reaching the climax, you have to kind of like shuffle all the pieces around and like get everybody like like it it doesn't feel like wheel spinning i'm not saying that i'm saying that these episodes to me kind of felt like sort of like place setting for the climax and um i don't i i enjoyed most of these episodes but it's they, they don't feel like C cohesive in any way it's just like ah this happens and then you know oh back to hikaru and then oh i guess we'll give fu some screen time too and uh, back to hikaru now you know it's like very weird uh i feel like yeah yeah the split storylines like they seem to so the fact that they exist in our like so there was a I mean, we already talked in, like, earlier in Season 2 
that sets up these like split arcs gestures at them. And the fact that they're like continuing them is significant. Um, but yeah, it kind of feels like there are moments where it kind of feels like it's treading water when it's like pursuing these different arcs. And then mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, Hikaru has this like through line of her, her sword and like, you know, the stuff with Nova. Uh, and then, yeah, like, I don't know. It, I, I can see, like, I, I felt that sometimes as well, watching through these episodes, that it, the pacing is kind of odd. Yeah, one thing in particular that, like, even as the one who writes these synopses, um, there is a, a certain amount, too, where, like, I feel like this started breaking a little bit as we got further into season two, but especially at this point, um like there is no longer this like cohesive episode structure that existed previously um Mm -hmm. where like especially for season one it's like oh this entire episode is about like this encounter with this villain or whatever and there was like a clear like beginning middle and end to that episode whereas this feels like it's like gone into a longer like you could like put some of these together into just like a movie at this point um like because there's just a bunch of like well we just get to a point where like oh now asuka has the flying sword summoned and like this is a cliffhanger to like drop off on and then we're just gonna pick it up again and like resolve whatever's been happening yeah um and a lot of it just kind of feels like it's like they have this longer story that they're trying to tell that involves like cutting back and forth between like going into these episodes, having even just watched this fairly recently, um, there's still a part of me that thought that it was like more clearly demarcated of like, this is the episode of like Umi on Chizeda. This is the episode of like Fu with Farin, like right into like these clear, like delineated things. Um, and then just like, I, I remembered that it kept cutting back and forth to like Hikaru, like having this extended i'm like out i'm out of space i'm like not able to help anybody because i'm trying to revive my sword and having this like internal conflict with nova um but then even then i thought there was like an episode that was like resolving it and it it's far more like weirdly mingled um Mm. and yeah it i don't fully know what to make of it um one, I... So, so in between we, in the uh, like five seconds between when we recorded discussing the first four episodes and then these five episodes because we're all doing this in the same session. Yeah, um, we we all yeah. just got up. <laughs> to July just like 19th, twenty twenty one. Yeah, that's the day it is today. <laughs> yeah, uh, we just stretched our legs. I went to the bathroom. While I went to the bathroom, I watched a thirty minute uh, interview with the director of Magic Night Ray Earth. Um, <laughs> And one thing that he talked about in that was, um, so apparently this show was originally planned to be like a one year series, which is what it ended up being. Um, and the first season in particular was, was not having the best of ratings. Um, and so actually the studio wanted to cancel it after six months, um, and so then they were like basically threatening to cancel it 
at all times while he was like still working on it. Um, and so second season, I like hearing him talk about his experiences trying to make second season and like being excited that he was getting more control. And yet also it was like constantly looming of like every month it would be like, well, is the show ending? Like, (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I have to keep making like four more episodes, but, um, and so like, I think there's this certain weird, um, like he's just kind of trying to like push through stuff to a certain degree, I think. Um, in this way that like it, it, it does become like less clearly here are these like individual episodes making up an arc and more just him. Like there's almost a vibe that I get to these episodes of him being like, well, if I end every episode with like nothing being resolved, they can't cancel it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to sustain interest here. Like every, yeah. every episode ends on a cliffhanger. Yeah. Well, and it's so weird because it it's just such a weird experience watching it because every time stuff is happening with Hikaru and Nova, I'm like, this is good. Like, everything that's going on with them is really good and really compelling and really interesting. And it, it feels like Umi and Fu have just been hanging out with the joke characters for, like, the last 10 or 15 episodes. And so it's kind of a it's kind of been a bummer for me is just like, I don't really care whenever Umi and Fu are on screen, you know, like they just have gotten saddled with like the B plot and it's hard to tell how much of any of it will end up mattering because it feels like it, it, it it feels like within the realm of possibility that everything that they're doing will matter, but it will matter in the context of we were hanging out with, uh, Chiseda and Farin, um, the, you know, the jokey racial stereotype characters, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I um, think it, I think it matters less in the, like, immediate plot impact way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, if, if we want to, which, I mean, <laughs> uh, probably will happen. Um, I think it, I think there's like thematic development that is happening, but yeah, as far as like, is this moving the plot anywhere or is this having like any impact further downstream? Um, probably if I'm remembering right, uh, I don't think it's a whole lot other than what you can probably assume. Yeah, like, I don't want to go too far into spoiler territory, but I, I think, like, the way that things end here on 39 and knowing that there's 10 more episodes left, um, like, I, I I think most people could, like, you can probably watch this autumn and say, like, it kind of seems like Chizeta and Farin are not really the, the main, like, plot antagonists that this, like, war that's... Um, coming to Saphiro is going to be around it's like it is going to be around um eagle as like the representative of autosm and then like debonair and what's going on with like debonair and nova and those are like the have already been more clearly set up as the like bigger threats whereas um like the I think in these episodes, part of what's happening is there's a certain amount of like, they're going to, uh, 
talk to the the people from Chizeda and from Farin. And this whole idea of like, I don't want to fight anyone until I know what their like goals are and, and what their side is. Um, both of their sides, I think, are like more clearly easily resolved where, I mean, this like colonist project or whatever that Chizeda is doing is a little bit more complex, but also like they just genuinely don't seem to have any idea of like what it means to be the pillar of Sephiro, um, in a way where they like, just seem surprised. Like, Oh, you have to like do all of this. To, oh like... yeah. never mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> that, that, yeah. That kind of sounds like it sucks. Um, and then like very specifically lady Asuka is like the whole reason why I want to be the pillar of Sephiro is so that like I can date song young and he'll think that I'm pretty. Um, and then Fira's like, no, you're you're already pretty. And she's like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. Never mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also being like, look, maybe I would be prettier if I was the Pillar of Sephiro, but it sounds like what you're saying is that, like, then I don't get to love anyone, and that sucks, because that's the whole reason why I yeah. want to. Yeah, <laughs> right. purpose. Whereas Eagle's just like, no, I love my country. I'm I'm a nationalist. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I, like we need we need fucking natural resources, and I'm I'm a nationalist, so yeah, not not quite as easily um, resolved. And I have uh, anime space disease anyway, so <laughs> like, who cares? I'm gonna die yeah. anyway. <laughs> and I'm I'm really sad about like my breakup with Atlantis, so I'm yeah. like, I'm channeling my like all of my anger from that into just like this nationalist imperialist project. God, that fucking scene though, with him getting up on his tippy toes to, to, to like basically <laughs> kiss Geo. It is, it is really funny that this, this show is like, it is as if, it is as if the show anticipated me specifically because by all rights, I should hate Eagle. He's a guy named Eagle. Um, oh, Eagle's vision ever. Eagle vision. <laughs> and he and he wants he, he wants to do imperialism and when somebody says, Hey, that's a bit fucked up, he's like, Yeah, it is, but I have anime disease, so I've gotta do it because I love to. <laughs> and I like he is scientifically designed to make me hate him, but they give him a boyfriend and an ex boyfriend, and I'm like, Oh actually he's a pretty good character. I really like him. <laughs> I enjoy his presence in the te- television show because he has a boyfriend and an ex-boyfriend. I love Eagle so much. He sucks, but I love him. <laughs> and yeah. his boyfriend is like totally cool that every six seconds Eagle Vision is like, man, Lantis. <laughs> hey, Geo, do you remember Lantis? I remember Lantis. Lantis. He's just like, and Geo is just like fine with that. Geo is just like, yeah, I know you're not over him. It's fine. Like whatever, I don't care. <laughs> I'm still the one who gets to tuck you into my bed and watch you sleep, so I'm fine it, with it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, the uh, the Geo and Eagle dialogues are like are just really, I, I think, some of the highlights of these episodes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> they really are. This is like some of the. I think it's funny how we all like notice the like the the shot of Eagle's like toes, literally like standing <laughs> on his toes to like close the height gap with Geo, as being yeah. something that's just so like 
it is just so unmistakably like I've seen this shot a thousand times in like rom coms and shit, and like you know street couples kissing. Like this is just like the shot that can that conveys like that and only that. Um, and and finding it here, like I didn't remember that that this was in here, and finding it here this time around, I was like, oh my god, okay. Um, especially in conjunction with like all of this stuff about like oh yeah, like your anime space disease, like I'm not going to let you invade even though it's like not invading now is suboptimal, uh, but I'm forcing you to rest because like I care about you and here I'll lend you my bed even though you like probably have your own bed, I assume. I'm, I'm the NSX battleship that yeah, like, they <laughs> are command. in command of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but like, it's just like, oh yeah, no, I'll lend you my bed. Like, there's some appeal to like him sleeping in Gio's bed that is just like completely taken for granted by the show. Um, and like never questioned and, uh, which I found really amusing. And then the whole stuff thing about like, Oh, I'm upset with you right now, but like, I love you. I'm going to make you rest. Um, even yeah. though I'm upset with you, but like, I'm not giving you my candy because I'm mad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, like, I know I mentioned this before, but I just want to, like, further drive this point home. So, one, Eagle is voiced by the same voice actress who did Emerod. Um, and Lantis and Zagato are the same voice actor. Yeah. Also, the voice actress is Megumi Ogata, who is known for voicing lots of queer-coded characters, or just, like, canonically queer characters, including mm-hmm. Sailor Uranus, um, Haruka Tenno. But also did like uh, Nagido Komaeda from the Danganronpa series, um, Shinji Akari in Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, Yugi question. and Yami Yugi from Yu-Gi-Oh crossover here with Attention Duelist. Go listen to Attention Duelist; it's great. Um, I'm raising my hand. I have a question. <laughs> yes. Is yes. there anything queer about Shinji Akari's character? Um, you might want to listen to our last season. Okay. Uh, I'm a Where little watch... behind. I don't remember anything gay happening in that show, but I'll... Yeah, there's no scene where he has to uh, kill the the representation of his queer desire. <laughs> um, I was thinking about Evangelion Shinji's, today, Shinji's and I was like, ah, straight. you know what? Evangelion's okay. <laughs> it's really just NMA, but it's bad. <laughs> Um, so, okay, so since we all agree that, like, on the, uh, we all agree on that Geo and Eagle, Geo, Eagle, and this subject. Yes. Um, maybe, like, maybe we can revisit the thing that we kicked, uh, in earlier tonight, you know, when we were recording mm-hmm. the first part of this yeah. episode. I remember it um, so well. Can you please remind me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um, the, the question of the gin. Um, and all the yes. stuff like surrounding this, which emerges in the in the episodes that we covered earlier tonight, um, but that we agreed we would talk about uh, now, which is the same night. Yes. Um, so, like, for the most part, for me, the Jin, there's just like clearly this this weird like queer phobic or homophobic joke happening like a lot of it is around the way that they are 
doing feminine dances or even like in these five episodes, um, sometimes they speak with the voice of Tarda and Tatra. It's like like a double. Yeah. 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 Um, But like have like this feminine voice as well. Um, And so, and a lot of that is what's being framed around like why it's disgusting. Um, Right. But then there's some weird stuff going on with like the characters who are, are most disgusted. Like food does not seem to be disgusted. Umi does. Asuka clearly is like, those are like the two main ones who like get really singled out for like thinking that the Jin are disgusting. Um, and Umi even makes a comment about like not liking how macho they are, (laughs) which is, is the inverse of like what the actual joke seems to be. Um, and so there's like a certain weirdness to the the overall joke is aren't effeminate men disgusting and gross, and yet the way that is being framed around at least Umi could tie into like Umi has never found a man attractive in her life <laughs> and is just like turned off by any male sexuality. Yes. Um, in this way, that's just like bizarre. <laughs> like I don't have a full cohesive thought on it, but. I do have a cat yeah. that continues to try and break into my. This is just like every recording I've been doing recently. I'm just, just, being I'm a just vibing. Manic. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited that... for you to hear the end of the question bucket we just recorded, Autumn. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. No cats are featured whatsoever. Um, yeah. I. So the first time I watched this, like I didn't perceive these as like representing gay men at all. Actually. Um, but now that like you pointed out earlier tonight, um, I I definitely see it um, in the fact of like just the basic facts that you know they're like literally extensions of Tarda and Tatra, um, and the whole thing about like them being summoned by that dance, um, which is just like what we discussed for season one with Prisea. Um, her smithing that being like all this this feminine coded activity of like this delicate dance um and the way the show is like inverting gender stuff with that um here it's like okay you know there's a dance that they do together to some of these gin and that's this kind of feminine coded thing um and then the gin themselves are like doing dancing because to control the gin as well Tarda and Tatra dance or something um so yeah there's definitely like this femininity projected onto them um but then yeah i mean just as you were saying Eve, like the the way that it's localized it, it it's just complicated like repeatedly um it like the frame moves between characters who are like disgusted by it and the characters who are not um or specifically, like, Tarda and Tatra are not. Um, there's a whole dialogue, like, the, the only purpose of this dialogue is just to, them being, like, befuddled by the fact that Umi and Fu, to, like, a much lesser extent, but the fact that they're, like, grossed out, and they're just like, why are they grossed out? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and then the thrust of that dialogue is that, like, oh, yeah, like, uh, Tarda is like attracted to the gin and like, oh, your husband is going to be just like, look like one of these, uh, 
like one of these creatures. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, that's not marking them as gay. That's marking them as like, you know, in, in relation to like this, like explicitly straight, like relationship. Um, and, and in so doing, it's also like relativizing the disgust um, that Umi's mm-hmm. feeling about like their, you know, feminine dancing or whatever. Um, and there's stuff in like, I think it comes back. So, I mean, that's just in the first, like the episodes we did earlier. Um, but it keeps coming back uh, in, in like, in this configuration, I feel like where it's, it's constantly um, being complicated uh, in, in these weird ways. And it, it, so I, yeah, I don't really know um, the reading that it has to do with Umi, like that makes sense. But then also like Asuka is disgusted by them as well. So I feel like the way that Asuka and Umi have the same reaction, like, so it's just, it's not only an Umi thing. Um, it's, there's just something like, yeah, there's just something odd um, <laughs> going on here with, with these creatures. It's all, it's just weird. And it they just beat this dead horse. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's like, I don't know if the like continuation of like all of these sequences showing the gin like in action or whatever, like comparing the, uh, the amount of sequences with the illusion creatures from Farin to like the amount of sequences that are like featuring the gin. I feel like there's so many more that feature the gin, just fight sequences and like, you know, interstitial sequences that are just like where they're not fighting and just doing like, you know, dancing or whatever. Um, so they're definitely like, lingered on and but i don't know if all of this stuff happening around it is like the fact that this is lingered on if it ends up emphasizing more about like the individual characters than about like the the gin themselves and what like we should be feeling about the gin uh or if it's like being somehow like modified or conditioned every time it happens, like uh, to just with the thrust of like, we should be thinking more about um, like how this is relativized um, and how these, like what it means that these characters are reacting like this. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Like one of the reasons why I don't like a lot of the stuff around the Jin is just that like the the main joke for us as an audience is I believe like it is just a homophobic joke, uh-huh. um, and there's weird other stuff that they're doing around it, but it's just like, and like some of it is like is like complicating it, but not in any way that seems to like actually be meaningfully like like meaningful enough to separate out like oh the fact that they made the homophobic joke for literally half an episode, like it all works out though, because they, they complicated it in these interesting ways. They're just complicating it in weird ways and in ways where 
like I can try and read into okay like Umi says like oh I can't stand these macho types but right. also that might just be the joke of ha 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 she's saying macho types but we all know that it's like because That's of these effeminate gay men um and it's just like a weird continuation of the joke so yeah it's like there is weird stuff happening around them um and it is also like there's the weird juxtaposition of they just have this extended homophobic joke and then they literally write every single scene with eagle and geo um Mm -hmm. they wrote and animated every single one of them um and so it is just this like I, I just feel like there's a lot of stuff from like, especially this era, but it, th- there's just like this tendency of like, you have to sometimes find what is good and interesting when it comes to like, Oh, here's like queer resonances. And sometimes that involves just having to be like, yeah. And then like these, this episode in particular and the jokes around it that, you know, for this show extend into way too many episodes, they just kind of suck. Like, I, I'm not really that interested in trying to like <clears throat> fully redeem what are they doing with the Jin because I don't I don't see anything that they're doing being like with them particularly being worth the inclusion of these jokes in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um even as I can still say like, yeah, there there's some stuff that could be interesting here because for me like, I think it's good for us to talk about it a little bit here, but there's also a certain point where I'm like, I, I don't have anything else to say about them. Like, I would rather yeah. just keep talking about Eagle and Geo, even though I don't have a ton more to say about them either right now. <laughs> but, like, um, yeah. it, it feels like I, th- I think we've, like, marked out what is, what is like, complex or weird around it, but um, I don't know how fruitful, like, further exploring it will, will ever be because... Also, they just, these jokes suck. They suck. Um, it's yeah. like <laughs> not I mean, fun or interesting. <laughs> um, but we, yeah. we can maybe move on to. Should say that maybe? I guess to like lead into that, I don't have stuff. I, I have really nothing about Fu and, or not Fu, Umi and Shiseta. Like, I have really nothing to say about that, truly. I want someone to reassure me that this show is not trying to set up Umi and Clef, because that seemed like it where it was going, and that is, like, the only interesting thing that happened to um, uh, Umi in this batch of episodes, and I'm unhappy with it. That That is seemingly where the show is continuing to go. Should, yeah, should we keep them in suspense? Um, I mean, so... I don't think that they really go anywhere with it. Um, That's good. You could disagree with me here, Connor, if you have a different feeling. Like they, I, I this honestly is don't like really a... remember. And I like, as I said earlier, I don't. Th- I mean, look, there's something that is like that is happening with that. I don't remember if it goes anywhere. And at this point in time, like. I don't really think it's going anywhere it, or not really to the extent that like, I, I think stuff with other characters is um, there. So yeah. Like, you know, I was not watching, I was watching through again recently 
like second season i was not watching quite as closely as i would for like i'm gonna record a podcast on this um i really don't remember anything that like would canonically invalidate a reading of umi as someone who has like never found a man attractive in her life and is just gay for hikaru okay (laughs) Um, like that That's reading, all I, needed. I think always remains a possibility. And I think even in some of the stuff that comes up with Clef here, like there's a certain amount of Umi just being like, there's a certain way that you can even read Umi's reaction to Kaldina as being like, why would you be joking about me being attracted to like any of these guys? <laughs> um, while they're also clearly setting up like the possibility of a clef ship, which was like yeah. a ship that existed in the fandom. Um, like, I'm not saying that like the only reading of it is Umi has like, you know, there's like clearly no other, there's no way that you could read this as being the show setting up a ship with clef. But I, like even, <laughs> even <laughs> the, like that, the scene with like, you know, uh, Umi and, and Kaldina go to visit Ascot. Um, and then, like, Kaldina makes a joke about Clef. Is a thing where you can still read Umi as just being upset about Kaldina suggesting, like, Umi having any sort of desire for any of these people. Um, like, she just, like, seems to be upset about the joke. And you could read that joke as you're joking about, I actually do care about Clef. Or you could read that joke at, or, like, that reaction in the joke as, like, seriously why would you joke about any of this like right like i'm i'm not interested in any of these people um in the way that like it begins with her parents being like oh seems like it's a romantic problem and her being like if only my problems are romantic (laughs) like that's not like why i'm upset um so yeah i Again, like I think this show continues to have these weird tensions, and it's, mm-hmm. it's. I think the ending is going to have this, like, I do not think that the ending ever fully clearly resolves. Like, is the end? These girls have to like grow into adulthood, which means like the heterosexual expectations placed on them or do they in fact like break from that i don't think the show ever has a clear reading on that and so um we will get to like different readings and and ways to think about it but um yeah the like in some ways ray earth as a whole is like a a master class in queer baiting So it's part of why I love it because they do it so much and they never like, they never truly floor close it in my reading um, in a way where I can get to the end of this and still be like, yeah, Hikaru, Umi and Fu are girlfriends. And that's how this ends. Like (laughs) uh, Hikaru expanded their polycule a little bit, but that's it. Like they're still girlfriends. (laughs) Yeah. I think, Uh... I think that pretty much like, I think that pretty much uh, rounds out the <laughs> the Umi Clef thing. Um, yeah, that like for me, what's interesting about it is these weird traces that are just like three second like moments um, 
that are just clearly making this link um and and not so much like oh here's this like explicit canonical like or canon defining content uh that like oh like holding is like oh do you like clef and he's like yes like that's not you know clearly that's not happening but there's like it's just part of this overall like atmosphere and this this feeling of like this kind of gravitational feeling uh it for me that there's a pull like on these girls and in the world of the show um and i don't think like again like i, I don't think it comes to anything if i recall um but it's just like a a less pronounced like it, we're, uh, an area where this stuff that we've been talking about is happening, but it's like less pronounced. And then I don't think, as far as like canonically, um, it it ever falls down on like mm-hmm. one or, on one or the other. Yeah, there there's almost so like because we we work in the threes of the the three girls a lot in the show and so there's a certain amount too of like foo for a very long time just having this like clear canonical straight pairing with fario um hikaru like throughout season two like getting into this pairing with lantis but the, the way that the show is figuring that like never clearly delineates it like you know, minor spoilers, but, like, Hikaru and Lantis end up, I think people can, like, see this in the trajectory, like, they end up as, like, a canonical pairing in the yes. show. But I don't think that that pairing is ever positioned in a way, which to some degree also happens with, like, Fu and Ferio, but, like, it's even more complicated here in a way that, like, breaks Hikaru from having clear love for other characters that like continue to be specifically named by like Nova and things as like Hikaru loves lots of people one of which is Lantis and that that like is also figured canonically and so like and you almost have to do work in a way that you don't with Fu to like close that off as a monogamous relationship like you have to read certain scenes certain ways as being like this is specifically demarcating like the love that she has for lantis is somehow different um which it gets named but like that somehow difference being that this is like uh the only like heterosexual whatever um like romantic sexual attraction uh and then with Umi, like, you kind of get, the, like, you get Ascot and Ascot, like, specifically being, um, actually being foreclosed despite it being, like, the most popular ship at the time that the show is airing. When they, like, first set that stuff up, it, like, specifically forecloses that with Ascot um, in a way where, again, it's still funny to me, Connor, that you thought that, like, they confirmed that because they really don't. They actually, yeah. like, we even get in this scene with um caldina like a specific like no umi's because they're not interested in him um and then they like well, there's like a they like there's... suggest that the reason could be clef but they never really confirm it in any way um well, and then, in this and way then where she's like... like the most unmoored from having like a clear canonical heterosexual ship at the end 
Yeah, I, I think there's something happening with like the is it Clef or is it Ascot and both of those being like gestured at kind of and set up. Um, and then, of, but of course, it never goes anywhere. I know that now. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that scene, <laughs> that scene really like exemplifies the dynamic because it's like, yeah. So you know, Umi is like worried about Ascot and the guy's bedside, and you know, blah blah. blah. And then Caldina is like, "Oh, do you like Ascot?" And then she's like. Or, or something to that effect. And then she's like, no. And then uh, something about Clef. And then Claudia's like, oh, so it's Clef. And then Umi's like, no, like, it's not anything like that. And then runs away. And then Claudina, there's that shot where Claudina's like, wait, could it possibly be? And then, like, it's panning back down to Ascot. Like, oh, wait, no, she's mad that I suggested Clef because she it's actually Ascot. But yeah. you can just as easily read that as like Caldina's just like straight and confused. Um you also didn't touch on the fact that like Caldina is now paired with Lafarga. So yeah. <laughs> that um, does get but, like just suddenly canonically confirmed. Uh uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's this this It's uh, funny to me too that they do the specific drawing the veil, like suggesting that they're going to have sex, and then they just show them still kissing. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny that <laughs> Caldina, like, it's like a sort That's... of like abstraction of her like throwing up her cloak over the camera, but then they zoom out to show yeah. you that she was actually holding up her cloak to a camera. <laughs> yeah, that that relationship to me is really funny, like. I mean, it's kind of sad and kind, of, but also more funny just because of like how it's just so ham-fisted and like in relation to the to again like one of this running theme of our talk, um, where I'm just like, yeah, the the like show is just some like malevolent force is just coming in and just being like, okay, like bam, like y- y'all are straight now, like that's a that's a pair. Uh, and just like trying to force these relationships that make absolutely no sense. Uh, and yeah, for me, Lafarga and Caldina, like it doesn't make any sense. Um, and it's comical that this show like has dialogue that tries to make sense of it. Cause it, there's this like overwhelming feeling of like the show even is like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. We're just doing this because like, we need a straight relationship to happen here. And so let me write dialogue about like Caldina being like, Oh yeah, I really like, like you're exactly my type. Cause my type is like super boring, like tall guy. And you know, then they kiss. Um, so I don't know. Anyway, that that's, that's my take on that. I, I think it's somewhat comical that they do that relationship. Um, I think the one other thing I want to say with, like, the Umi, Ascot, and Clef thing is, and, and like, this ties into also a, like, Umi is gay reading of her, which is that I do think that the show is engaged in this, like, idea of, um, 
the like age of discretion being the space in which like homosexual or like homoromantic things are are allowed and then like you're supposed to grow out of it um and i think this show is like somewhat preoccupied with that like what does it actually mean to grow out of it and and is that like actually a thing that you can grow out of as well and so there's a certain amount of like clumsy setting up that you could read of um what's happening with like umi is specifically like part of why umi might not be interested in ascot is because he grew up and is like had like exited out of this like age of discretion where like it the love doesn't really mean anything like ascot growing up like creates the possibility of actual sexuality in a way that like umi maybe doesn't want and that clef being depicted as younger like does not have that like potentiality of sexuality and so that is like why that is also being brought in this is like a kind of incomplete take but it's like you could read it, this into it, but also my my read at the end is just like, no, Umi is gay and is not interested in any of these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is, I think, one reason why you could be like, why is it these two characters that are like being brought in in terms of Umi? And it's because I think the show is preoccupied with like the girls growing up. And so having like the two potential ships for Umi being around like a certain level of childishness um, yeah. could, could I- be like... a intentional here um yeah i think and i like and also as like separate from like creepy evangelion misato shinji stuff but like more like this is a young girl as well who doesn't want to like grow up to have sex (laughs) right you know like making that clear this like just thinking about this reading like i think it to like tie all of that together i think we could like follow your reading of like umi is gay and again like this is not my like personal experience but uh you could go you could follow the reading of like umi is like this young girl who's gay who like is having to deal with all of these pressures of heteronormativity and people like constantly trying to voice this upon her and like seeking out like as a result of that like seeking out these to some extent seeking out these like interactions with these men who are like because that they're not like sexually viable for whatever reason um or like having to do like when they become sexually viable is when like she is like oh okay no like i'm repulsed by this or like this is not what i want um but it's like oh you should have relationships with men it's like okay well i guess i'll like go see clef who like is not it doesn't seem like a sexual entity to me so it seems like like yeah it's the safe boy the it's clef is umi's beard (laughs) 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 um anyway do we want to talk about official reading yeah do we want to talk about a little bit with like umi and tartatatra like i think Um, we can be short on this but um i think there's a certain amount of like paralleling aspects of umi here 
in terms of yeah. Tarda and Tatra? Yeah, I'll just I'll just go really quick and take a shot at it. So I feel like the defining aspects of Chizeta that we get in these episodes, um, piecing them together, it there's so much ritual and custom that is like built out and shown for Chizeta. Um there's stuff about like proper speech, propriety like uh Tarda or Tatra reminding Tarda like about her cursing and about her accent um, and like correcting her. Uh, so stuff about you know, like formal proper speech, um, filial piety. Uh, so not only like respect for her uh, older sister, but also they make reference to like they're doing this conquering colonialism because like they made a promise to their parents Um so, you know, th- there's th- this aspect, um, dueling, which like historically is, um, at least like in some countries, uh, that I know of, like it's historically like an upper, like a nobility, um, type of activity associated with nobility. Um, this preoccupation with honor, uh, again, like, oh, you lost the duel, like, so we're gonna, you know, honor that and like not murder you or not capture you again or something. Um, and then the whole like having tea, uh, like tea parties, bullshit. Um, all of this is like stuff surrounding like class and status and like, you know, associated affectations. Um, and you can see it in the dialogue of like, oh, we're the proud princesses of Chizeta. We've never poisoned an enemy because that's underhanded. Uh, instead, we're going to duel you because that's noble, like blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, I think, and, and Neve, you were saying this uh, last earlier, um, how this is reflecting stuff that we've talked about with Umi, where she has this kind of... Um, I mean, the most critical way we could put it is obsession, but when we see it initially, it's an obsession, um, but still like a fixation on a psychological fixation on class and social status because of her background and her lifestyle um, and how that shapes her, like her worldview and who she is. Um, and it seems like, you know, Chizeta is like holding up a mirror uh, to her around these like aspects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, for me too, like I think these, um, like the Umi Chizeta, and then we can also talk next about Fu and Farin. But like for me, some of this I think is also specifically framed around like again. I think a lot of season two is about like growing up, um, and like this transition from like girlhood to womanhood, um, as a thing that like the show is focusing on and and concerned about. Um, and we've been talking about a lot of themes around it. And so I think there's also a certain amount of like, like a thing that stands out to me is in being the like, um, comedic characters, the princesses of Chizeta and then like Lady Asuka and her attendants, um, for Farin are the place where we get the most of the like kind of campy, stuff that existed in season one like i think there's even a part where um like 
Tarda is yelling at Tatra and her head gets really big and like she kind of like becomes chibi as she's yelling, which is just Mm -hmm. a thing that was employed a lot in season one and like basically never gets employed in season two. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a certain amount of them like specifically employing some of the humor of season one around these characters as a way to like further emphasize how like Umi, I think it is supposed to be growing beyond like the princesses of Chizeta is like becoming more mature. Um, and we get that most clearly with like Tarda because Tarda is the one who is more clearly the like, um, kind of like childish bratty part that we, we got with like Umi in the beginning. Um, but also with like Tatra, I think there's even some there of like Umi's also trying to move beyond that as well. Um, that like Tatra is kind of just like, mm, I'm just going to like smile and be proper to like keep getting through um, in this way that like Umi is like becoming more intentional, I think. Um and so, unless people have more thoughts to immediately say on Shizeta, like, moving over Dufu and Farin. Um, just giving a pause there in case anyone wanted to interject. <laughs> like, <laughs> No. I think you get this even more clearly with Fu and Farin, because um, Fu, like, very quickly takes on this kind of, like, um, mentor role with Lady Asuka, uh, which will, like, continue to get drawn out more in the next ten, 10 episodes, like, the final 10 episodes. Um, but there's a certain amount of, like, oh, like, I, you know, almost this, like, let me, like, look after this girl, this little girl. Let me, like, take on this, like, somewhat um, older sister role or something to her. But I, and I think, like, if you look at Lady Asuka, it's harder to see her immediately as a parallel of Fu, but I think there's still a certain amount of, it's more extreme, but her representing certain, um, like, I think at the beginning of the series, you might conceive Fu as being the, like, most mature of the three girls. Because she's the one who's, like, kind of has this, like, you know, she's not as obsessed with class and things. She's not as, like, constantly obsessed with, like, I just want to go home, like, Umi. And then, like, you know, in the interview that I watched with the director, he specifically says, like, he thinks that in season one, Hikaru is, like, the, the most immature and has the most growing to do. And that's why she becomes the, like, main focus of season two um, is because, like... I do think that he conceives this as like the season two is them like growing up and becoming more mature and like going into mm-hmm. womanhood and Hikaru like kind of has the most to do as the one who is just like the most willing to accept whatever was, was asked of her in season one. Um, and also who like repeatedly gets commented on by characters as being like, I can't believe you're the same age as us. You you're like so short and you look so young and everything. Yeah. Um, but I, so I think like Fu was already kind of the most mature, but there are like signs that you could see for how Asuka is in some ways like her. Um, in that, like, we kind of talked about how like Fu often seems to be like, oh, calculating, like, let me, let me think this through, be logical, and yet has this like impulsiveness around Ferio in particular. And so, like, pairing that up with, like, Asuka as the other one who, of all of these, has the clearest, like, 
straight ship in the way that in season one Fu had a clear straight ship and is right. the like is like very impulsive and childish like i think there's a certain amount of some of the ways in which asuka is impulsive and childish you could see as being how Fu w- was impulsive and childish and maybe had just like grown the most beyond it already and that's why she like most readily adopts this like older sister role um so that's kind of my read on what's going on with these but um i don't know if people have additional thoughts on on Fu and far and are like overall what's happening here <laughs> um i no. think I, you go I, well i think i think that's uh pretty spot on um i also think that the fact that what stands out about these sequences to me is that the quickness uh and like force with which Fu takes on this posture um, there's even like shots when she first meets Asuka and Asuka like confronts her and is like, give me room god, blah, blah. Um, there's shots of Fu like processing it for like a, for a second and then just immediately pivoting to this posture that she takes on, which you um, described as like sisterly mentor. Um, it is clearly like a teaching type demeanor. Um I also like. I also think it would be re- would be remiss to not throw in like that this has shades potentially of like motherliness, um, like teaching this young girl to do you know to have impulse control and like um, you know morality and uh, so on and so forth. Um, so I think. There's one way you could look at this as like, so we know Fu has a sister. Um, we see her early in season two. Um, so you could look at this and be like, oh, this is Fu kind of playing out or like extending the relation that she has with her sister. Like her, her role as a sister in society, um, her like self-conception as a sister is being played out here. Where she's kind of adopting this uh, this demeanor, and that's what that is. Um, and you uh, you could also read it as like, especially the way that this is um, this then becomes like, oh, Furio, like linked with Furio once um, she like extricates herself from the situation, and Furio she immediately like then is linked with Furio. Um, you could see this in relation to, like, the transitional idea of, like, okay, yeah, Fu's next step is to, like, marry Furio, and this is indicating, like, a future of, like, some sort of potential future of her and, like, Furio, uh, like, her moving towards, like, being a mother or something. So I think you could read it like that as well. but I, I do think there are parallels. There are those more subtle parallels uh, with Fu and Asuka um, that are, are very much at play at the same time. Yeah. So we want to wrap with talking about um, Nova and Hikaru. I feel like, Autumn, you'll have the most to say here. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> can So really quick, I just want to like point out... Um, the, sequ- the split sequences, and the, the reason I'm, like, shoehorning this in is just because I think this is, like, 
for me, this is a, a major function of the the sequences that we were complaining about earlier that kind of like seem to tread water. Um, so we have this plot line with Hikaru where she's like struggling with Nova. Um, Umi and Fu, like, I think it's significant that Umi and Fu are off doing these things because they're spatially and psychically removed, um, like, and unable to save Hikaru in this existential struggle. Um, it is, like, again, it's tying back into, like, the, the splitting stuff that's happening earlier on. And then on the flip side, like, Umi and Fu don't have their girlfriend's help to get them out of their like predicaments um they it feels like there is what the show is doing is there's some necessity in these girls like moving apart and finding strength outside of one another and they do that they uh you know basically save themselves um you know through this kind of like personal strength self-reliance thing um, and then it is unignorable how they are all, uh, after they go through this, like, trial, they're all immediately linked, um, with some other, like, specifically male character, um, with Fu being quote-unquote saved by Furio, um, but going through this stuff with Farin, saving herself, riding the creature with Furio. Uh, Umi dueling uh tarda like escaping uh and then being saved by ascot and then hikaru uh slightly more complicated slightly <laughs> um much more but uh nonetheless like going through this stuff with nova um having this kind of temporary like triumph over nova uh that she achieves with like more or less by herself this is an encouragement from Prisea. Um, and then, like, being in, immediately put into Lantis's arms, like, once that's done. Um, and this is, like, for me, part of this, this thrust that I see, um, of the show, like, suggesting that this original triad is, like, somehow no longer sufficient or something that they have to like quote unquote grow out of or if not like no longer sufficient uh something that needs to be like something that they as individuals need to like can no longer uh rely fully on um, yeah i like i this is one of those things too where like i think we have two readings and it like causes us to also see some of this other stuff differently because i there is a certain amount of like yes they are supposed to like split up and get paired with these other guys but there's also a certain amount where one the splitting is mirroring like this these anxieties that hikaru is having about like the way that uh the like new feelings that she's having is like complicating the polycule basically that she's in and also this way that like they are kind of meant to split up because then they come back together stronger um Mm -hmm. like the this store it doesn't end with them just fully splitting up 
they're going to like right. come back together. Um, this is like already what's happening in, in 39 is them coming back together as well. Um, and so I don't know if I fully buy like the whole thing is they're, they're splitting apart and they're just supposed to be split apart because the show like puts them back together afterwards. And I like, they'll kind of continue to like separate and come back together. But to me, that feels more like the process of like being in a relationship with someone where sometimes there is distance. Sometimes you get closer and that like that process of being distant and coming back together is actually a thing that strengthens your love. Not like it, it like tests it, but it tests it in a way that's like, strengthening it and and making you trust each other more and be able to like better support each other rather than just um like you're breaking apart but i think it it like some of that is there because especially in these episodes there's a lot of like let's move on to hikaru and nova now but like a lot of what's happening with uh hikaru is like this like anxiety about relationships i think um and about like those relationships including umi and fu and like having anxieties around that and how the new feelings that she's having is like changing things um yeah so, so almost just like a reflection like all of this is a reflection of hikaru's anxiety about this uh her her polycule like disintegrating essentially where they're polycule yeah. disintegrating yeah i mean and it, just because like uh, again, I think framing this reading of like, which specifically, which specifically, I think the other reading is like, this is enacting like a conditioning of these relationships and a changing of this like relationships between the girls to like, it's reclassing it to create the conditions for them to like move into like quote unquote adulthood where they're going to be like, you know, straight. And so now these like, this homoerotic like love that they had like in order for them to move into adulthood needs to be like reclassed or reconditioned somehow through these like individual the splitting and like then they can come back together like having like grown and linked with these outside people like now they can come back together and the relationship is like this other thing that is now suitable to and i'm not saying that like is my reading um but i think like framing that up it makes it in a way easier to talk about like what other potentialities are, are there um yeah. because i think there's a way that the show i think we agree like there that let's the, let's the just show move can... on to Nova and Hikaru because I feel like we're getting to the point where it's just like let's talk about this the last final ten episodes because okay. there we can actually talk about how things resolve in a way where I think people have gotten this frame up of like there is this tension that is happening between like are these girls supposed to meet societal expectations of heterosexuality or is something else happening here and I would rather we like hash that out more when we just get to the end of the series and can like really get into those takes. Um, and for right now to like focus on what's this arc with Nova and Hikaru. So Nova and Hikaru. I love them. So, <laughs> do you, you want to start autumn? I want to, I want to yeah. give you space. Cause I know we've been talking about aspects of this. You have less to say about. I don't I don't know I don't know where to start. 
only just that, like, the... The moments of Hikaru, like, not under... Not understanding herself, and only being able to understand herself through this, like, sort of... Um external person who is a manifestation of her internal self like talking to her about all the things that she hates and all the things that she loves it's just good it's just the it's just the anime shit you know like i don't know i don't i i I don't i don't have a conclusion about it like i don't have any I, i don't know how much i have to like say about it only that like um Having the evil girl who is you, like, lean in for a kiss and talk about how much you hate yourself is, uh, just good. <laughs> yeah, um, I can, I can maybe say a little of, like, so, again, like, I, I've repeatedly said I'm both Ikaru and Nova because I think they're, like, I've talked multiple times on this podcast about various mental health struggles I've had. And I, I think like some of that comes through for me when it comes to um, like Hikaru and Nova here. And a lot of the, the plot here is kind of, you know, we've already in the previous four episodes we discussed set out like some of what was happening around like Nova Hikaru Lantis and then how that relates to um, like some of the other stuff that's been happening. So I, I kind of almost want to focus primarily just on the actual like fight that happens towards the end and like how some of this stuff is resolving. Mm-hmm. Um, because for me, I think what what is significant is like we get this scene that is um, particularly like like we watch it and it's like, Oh yeah. Like Hikaru's reviving her sword and she's like fighting back and it's, you know, defiant and she goes super Saiyan and it's like a cool fight. Um, and so, and I think for me, the show is intentionally like wanting you to buy into the, like, this is a, a major victory that this is like, ah, Nova has been rebuked. And like, for me, one of the most key moments of it is when Hikaru deflects. So like Nova combines her like dual lightsabers and throws it as like a cross boomerang or like Yuffie's weapon, basically. Um, and Hikaru like deflects it with her wrist. And then we see like her wrist is bleeding. Yes. Um, and for me specifically having this framed around like, showing her wrist bleeding from fighting against Nova, who's like set up as like connected to her, like to some degree is her fighting herself, having Nova say like, I love you because you hate yourself and I love everything you hate and hate everything you love. Um, having that like follow up with her wrist bleeding is for me evoking images of self-harm. And maybe this is just like my own mm-hmm. history of how I self-harmed, but I I think the show is somewhat intentionally like letting it have the reading of like, Oh, isn't she such a badass? Like here she is defiant, right. like is bleeding, 
but she is literally but. like in a, a fight with herself and is like hurting herself. Like Nova and, and Hikaru fighting it. I think it is actually specifically setting it up that this is an incomplete solution that Hikaru rejecting Nova Hikaru fighting Nova is in fact a form of self-harm or like a self-destructive thing. It creates its own problems. It is like her bleeding. Um, and it is not actually like a, a useful res resolution for what's happening. Um, which is why like we have 10 episodes left. Like Nova's not done here. <laughs> right. Well, and the 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 other thing that's happening here is that Nova says like you hate yourself, and Hikaru does not draw power then from like no, I love myself. No, um, I will take care of myself. No, like I will do all of these things um that I want. Hikaru draws the power to kick Nova's ass from um. Prisea coming down and telling her you need to you need to be the pillar of Sephiro uh, and Prisea coming down and telling her like you know all these other people are depending on you and Hikaru like is able to fight off Nova but not for herself but because the, she's like oh all these other people need me and so I have to like you know stop having this breakdown to go just, like, be functional for someone else, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I there There's stuff about, like... I can't remember exactly how it is structured, but there's stuff about, like, I have to believe in myself that, like, there, there's dialogue around that in these sequences, and then there's, like... I remember the conversation with Lantis after where she's, like, he's, like, who do you fight for? And she's like, I'm fighting for myself. But I I agree that like just just because the stuff is invoked does not mean that like that is where she is in that moment. Yeah. Uh it like you could see it as like a, a beginning to grasp that like or at like beginning to grasp at this thing that like it may be a solution, but like is not fully like grasped yet. Yeah. Um and so like I part of me is like th this is my main takeaway here. And again, like for me having a history, I see the wrist bleeding and I'm just like, oh <laughs> and it's like you fighting yourself, and I'm just like, oh sweetie, sweetie. Um <laughs> I, yeah, having your wrist bleed and then go to take care of people, um, you, you are not doing as well as you necessarily might think you are. Um, and right. everyone is so glad that you got your sword back. <laughs> um, and like, maybe you shouldn't be a weapon. Maybe you should like, maybe there are other things you can be that isn't wielding a sword. Um, so yeah, but and but I do think that this like show is also intentionally playing with like it being easy to see this as just like purely valiant and great. Um, but this show is very aware of like what season one was, and I I think there's a certain amount of like we should be somewhat concerned whenever someone is like picking up a sword and like bleeding to like continue to fight. Um. 
because because we've watched the first season <laughs> and we know how it ended. So yeah, and the irony of around that was like framed up in the first like immediately in this season around yeah. them being like weapons. Yeah, I think this reading of this scene is like much more like insightful and to the point of like what's what's going on than the the alternative reading. Um, and I think like the ultimate confirmation of this is what you pointed out earlier, which is like Nova is still like Nova is is not like resolved <laughs> at when this is over. Like she just go like flies away and goes and you know to wreak havoc on like you know three hours later. Yeah, I don't know if there if people have like any specific final thoughts. Uh, we can maybe talk a little bit about the stuff that's happening with Nova Atlantis, but I feel like we can also talk about that with the final ten episodes. Um, one thing that I I I want to like slightly bring up here, I guess, is just because it is a line that like really resonates with me, um, but. What Hikaru specifically says in Japanese is Gomenezai Demo Suki, which just means sorry but love or like like <laughs> uh I like would be kind of what would be implied there. But um you know, Japanese is like a f- is a language where there's often a lot more omitting of like subjects and things than there are in um English and so like there have been reads around this line that you could fill in the blanks like grammatically with like I'm sorry that I killed your brother but I I still like you or like you know that it's like could be specifically around that but I I think like the way that it's just sorry um that like what is she sorry for is it is an interesting question um and and for me it's just like big mood of I'm sorry just because I love you. Uh, <laughs> me loving you, I feel sorry about that. Um, I, I'm sorry that you have to deal with me loving you. Um, definitely has some resonances for me. <laughs> but I don't know if there's any final thoughts. Um, no, I think uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're right that a lot of this stuff just makes sense to do like next time um when we have more more content that we can talk like directly yeah about. yeah yeah we can just we can truly wrap up everything that's happening um so next time we'll be watching episodes uh let me correct this in the thing 41 through 49 of magic knight ray earth the final 10 episodes um, oh we're just skipping episode 40 Oh wait, yeah, forty, forty three, yeah, forty. Episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we are watching episodes forty through forty nine. It is late. I am tired. Uh, if, if you want to write into our question bucket, you can write into ghostdiverspod at gmail dot com. Um, you can go to exportaud.io to check out the export audio network and basically all the podcasts that Autumn does. Mm-hmm. Um, and give us money. You should give us money. Yes. Uh, patreon.com slash export audio is where that goes as well um 
if you go to exportodd.io slash ghostdivers, that's like you can share that link to ha- tell people to listen to this podcast. Uh, tell your friends, ghost divers. Let's see. Yeah. At Ghost Divers Pod on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Fox Mamnia. We'll follow you on Twitter, Connor. Uh, y'all can follow me at Rabelais, R A B B L E A S. Autumn. At Autumnal underscore coffee. Uh, you can also follow me at Garfred Aloud, where I read Garfield Aloud into a camera. Um, and we have a podcast. I guess we can mention this. <laughs> <laughs> Again, whatever. Ornate stairwells. Uh, who is it today? Makona. It's Umi. Um, okay. Um, I am going to say that it's Primera. Meow meow. I'm sticking with Umi. Umi, Connor wins. Fuck! I'm on, f- I'm on <laughs> fire right now. <laughs> okay. Thank- thanks, well, bye. There you go, see y'all. Goodbye. Thanks for stopping, bye.
not recording. What's up, bitches? Nora, Nora is. <laughs> I haven't watched the shit. Nora yeah. is not in the podcast. Nora, what do you think of Nova? Okay, if you you cannot say Nora, stop hugging me, and then when I go to leave, you can't grab me and hold me close. Well, Nia asked a question that I was going to pass along to you. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of Nova, the character from the anime? From Starcraft. I think it's fucked up because she never really got her own game. Uh huh. And I guess she's cool in Heroes of the Storm, but they should make Starcraft Ghosts. It'd be really funny if they announced Starcraft Ghosts. Metroid Dread is real. Metroid Dread is real. Why not Starcraft Metroid Ghosts? Metroid Dread is real. Okakoro is real. Oh, I never tweeted about it, but as I walked in today, um, there were a barista and a customer um, were having a heated argument about whether uh, WoW or FF14 was better. Let them fight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that's not my battle. <laughs> it was just really. It was a strange experience to walk in and like. I think it was like friendly, but they were pretty heated. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I'm recording. I'm recording. Oh, we got a time that is. We do. I'm assuming you're recording, Connor. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm recording. Now okay. recording. Now recording. I figured I would check. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. You know, no particular reason why you might do that, but it's always <laughs> best practices. Um, all right. So we're flipped once again. Uh, I am now choosing the time. Um, mm-hmm. Although we had a nice experiment yesterday with Neve choosing the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I nice. chose the time because uh, Connor hosted. Weird. Yeah, and I like. Yeah, and it, it went we flawlessly. To, um, we need to use Connor, that intro. Connor hosted the entire thing. Um, yeah. We need to use that <laughs> intro, by the way. Oh yeah, I'm I'm using all of it. <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect. Um, okay, we're gonna do uh, fifty-three. That was a quick turnaround. I was like scratching my face when I when you said it. I was like, "Oh shit!" Yeah. Uh. <laughs> All right, we're gonna I do like five. It. I li- no, I like keep being on my toes. Seven, eight, nine. <laughs> <laughs> Mine did um, the thing where it hitches again. So when you said uh, five, it then just stayed until it got to ten. Yeah, I I was gonna tell you all this at some point, but I actually can control time sometimes oh uh yeah well that's cool it's yeah can you Uh, can you like rewind a bunch of time tonight yeah um yeah uh when when do you want me to rewind to what uh what like what timestamp? i i don't know (laughs) <laughs> uh, all right. Well, then you lost, you lost your chance. Um, okay, uh, so we're going to do uh, seven. Okay. That I'm making these really mind. feeble claps because half Wait. my hand is burned off, and I'm, Wait. like, golf clapping. 
<laughs> That's Sorry. Right. You burned your we... hand really bad. Are we doing another clap? Sorry, I think I misunderstood something. Oh, yeah. yeah we did no, a clap yeah, we, we were. All right. Okay. We are now doing another clap. Uh, <laughs> and th- this clap will take place at 37, which is hopefully plenty of notice. Yes, it is. Okay. Cool. Okay. Got it. Nailed it. Got it in one. <laughs> yeah. Crush that. Um. All right. I guess get this podcast started. Let's do it. Okay. This is where normally we would do a pee break, but instead we're going to do a 24-hour break. A sleep break. <laughs> yes, we're going to... I am still going to pee many times, but immediately I'm going to go pee. <laughs> Because I have to pee very badly. You haven't given up on peeing yet? I'm going to sleep. Yeah. I'm going to stop. Oh, wait. First, let's do a time.is clap. Um, Yes. You're the one who I need it for. Whatever. I'll figure it out. Oh, I think we forgot to do the clap for um, the question bucket as well. Yeah. But if I download... um, the stuff from uh, Giarc, I can then look at where should your audio be falling at the end and then do the time. And usually it's around the same anyway, so. Yeah. Just shaking my head. Well, I'm going to stop recording. I'm going to stop recording then. The, your synopses are, are always pretty... I feel like they're always like, you know, loving jokes, whereas mine are just like, <laughs> hey, let's see if I can get Connor to say something that he doesn't believe and have it be recorded forever. All I'm saying is that you apparently care so much about as me that you have just like envisioned in your head and believe as real a kiss <laughs> that's well, all I i'm mean, saying not anymore and i, I prefer um scott actually <laughs> as the as the ship name okay um, well <laughs> scoomies uh, um scott that's <laughs> that's that's I think it's sufficient. Uh, either ask me or um, Scott. Uh, it uh, seems <laughs> like lately you you've abandoned the uh, Aska Umi ship and have gone over to the Clef Umi ship. <laughs> no, I don't really like. Look, I don't. Clue me. <laughs> I, I don't. We can't. We can't call it that. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't really think it's a shit but i'm just like it's it's weird that it keeps happening uh in the show like something is happening there um and i, I don't want it to be a ship and i don't know if i think it is but like it is it is kind of odd how they keep getting paired just saying 
My favorite pastime is fixing uh, Nia's typos in the uh, synopses. Um, I write them and then don't look back. I'm not a brand. I <laughs> I know this about you. Yeah, and these the are really is... released for public consumption, so... Um, yeah, also yeah. the thing is, I don't really read mine verbatim. Um, I just, like, use it as a guide. I, uh, I read yours verbatim because I'm bad at summarizing, and so when there's typos in mine, I have to fix them or I will just read them aloud and I will mess myself up. I am very not confident in my abilities to, like, read a thing aloud without sounding like a moron most of the time. I think you've done a pretty good job. When, of course, when the synopsis, the written synopsis, like, doesn't fail you. Yeah. Yeah. When you have good material, you've done a pretty good job. Of <laughs> Not always true, but you know. Um, should we do a time.is clap? Uh, I was thinking we could just roast you some more. Okay. Um, go ahead and roast me some more. I'm going to keep reading this manga. I didn't have any material. I just wanted to distract you from... No, no, roast me. You wanted to roast me. All right, I'll, I'll be back in 15 minutes. <laughs> I don't have any jokes. I didn't, I wasn't prepared to follow up on that. No, please, follow up. <laughs> Could we clap? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we 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 did not. We have not clapped. Yet. Oh, hey, Connor! I thought you left. <laughs> I was just trying to feel it out. Like, should I leave or shouldn't I? You know, it's kind of a hard, it's a hard read sometimes. Um. Okay. So, clap. Are you ready to clap? Or I'm ready to clap. Yeah. Okay. Um. Let's see. Be sure to give sufficient notice. Um, Twelve thirty. <laughs> In an hour? Oh, right. Yeah, time difference. <laughs> <laughs> I was also because normally we just do the seconds, and so I was looking at the seconds, being like, "Wait, we have to wait until it's twelve minutes and 30 <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, okay, we're gonna go on set. So, like, thirty seconds from now, more. Um, I meant, yeah, no. Uh, okay, we're gonna go on. Uh, what is it? It's eleven there. Okay, so I'm gonna give you the full time. Um, we're gonna go eleven thirty fifty. Okay. Okay. I would have gone down to the like milliseconds, but time that is, it just doesn't. Unfortunately, have that. yeah. So, I hope that was I hope that was good enough for it was for all it parties. was. I just I thought you meant seven at the top of the next minute, and I was like, that's a long ways away. Yeah, this was a pretty chaotic clap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's what I get for like trying to change things up too much. You literally just say that the two second numbers. <laughs> This is just the seconds, like 32. That's all right, you have right. to say. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never make that mistake again. I'm, I'm very, I'm dearly, dearly sorry. And I hope you'll forgive me. I'll think about it. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, that's the best I can ask for, for making such a horrible error. Um, yeah. So pocket podcast time. Um, yeah, although Autumn lost internet, so. Oh, should we, uh, let's, let's, uh. Yeah, Nora, Nora is cycling the stuff, but, um, and it, they're still recording, so we'll just keep recording, but. Okay, you want to, you want to just keep going then? No, we'll, we'll wait for Autumn to get back at this point. Oh, but. we'll continue, like, recording, but we won't. Yes. Podcast. <laughs> Okay, um, I figured I don't know how much more they really had to say about <laughs> the this, this pressing issue. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine with us just finishing that conversation without them. Um, okay. Um, but you think we I can, can ask when we get back. Yeah. Maybe I'll quick run to the bathroom. Okay. Hello. Oh, hey. Your, your internet was resuscitated. I see. Yes, I'm back. Yeah, meow. Mm. All right. Meow, meow. Um, I don't know if Connor said we we finished talking about the uh, Jin. I don't know if you yeah, really had more I, I to say about it. But... We could move on. <laughs> okay. Um, um, so yeah, I feel like just for looking at the clock and stuff for like planning, I feel like we could talk a little bit about like Umi and Shizeda, a little bit about Fu and Farin. Um, yeah. I don't know, like we probably don't have a ton to say on that, but a little bit about what they're, what are they doing there? Um, like I don't want to spend forever on both of those, especially because we're going to kind of get more of it in the next 10 episodes as well. Um, yeah. and then I, have... I think the the big thing to focus on is just like Nova and Hikaru. Yes. Um, 